Pete, welcome to Mind Body Solution. I, I want you to, as a beginning for this podcast, try to frame your thoughts nice and coherently with regards to the mind-body problem. I want you to start at the very beginning, and I want you to give us a nice philosophical history of the mind-body problem. And the reason why I want you to do this is that it allows you to give us an idea of which aspects of this mind-body problem regarding the history was important to you and helped frame your views moving to this point. So let's hear it. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to uh, be a guest on your podcast. Now, you start there with a, um, a big question. Um, perhaps the biggest question in, uh, in philosophy, the mind-body problem and its history. Now, oh, well, when we talk about history um, in philosophy, um, there are multiple histories of philosophy. There are the histories you get in the popular textbooks, the histories sometimes that we, we teach our, our students, which are often caricatures. Uh, then you get the history that the serious historians of philosophy do, and they say, no, 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 you've, you've got Descartes all wrong. And, oh, you've got the, that, that's, that's not how it went. And uh, the fact is the history is immensely complex. And any simple story you tell about it will distort it. Um, although it may pick out one thread that was really there and did influence people. And the other a, a thing that has happened is that because sometimes the caricatures and the simplistic stories have been repeated so often that they have become more influential uh, than, 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 than the reality, than what um, uh, um, philosophers actually uh, thought. So. Where do I start with it? So I'll what I'll tell you is my um, little story, if you like. Um, we always tend to start with Descartes when doing philosophy of mind, um, though it's no reason why we shouldn't start a lot earlier than that. Um, but Descartes is certainly a good, um, a good place for me to start because I, I feel that a lot of what I'm doing is trying to resist a kind of way of thinking about the mind that takes a lot of inspiration from Descartes and is often just called loosely Cartesian. And I suppose you could say that this is the conception of the mind as some sort of private world, all of its own, that is uh, better known to us than anything else. Uh, we inhabit this private mental world of thoughts and feelings and experiences and that's our real fundamental reality. And everything else, the world outside, other people, the universe, is something we infer from that, what's happening in the, our private mental world. Um, and maybe some people thought there isn't really, there isn't any uh, 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 outside reality. There is just this private mental world and other people's private mental worlds. It's idealism. And that's a view that, um, certainly finds inspiration in Descartes, because of course Descartes did this famous thing of asking what he could really be sure of, the method of yeah. doubt. And the one thing that he, that he felt he could be absolutely sure of, Ugito couldn't be sure that there was a God, there was a world, but he could be sure of his own what was happening in his own private mental world. Uh, and then of course, as soon as you start to frame uh, this, uh, the mind in this way as this private mental world, then you immediately, and Descartes was, well aware that he uh, this that he, you have a problem of saying how this private mental world is related 
to the, to the rest of reality. Assuming there is an external world, there is a universe, and there is an earth, and there are other people. How is my private mental world related to that? Um, it, they, for one thing, they seem to, and they can't thought this, they seem to be totally different kinds of things. The private mental world is a, it's a world of, of pure thought. It doesn't have any extension. It doesn't take up space. It's, it's pure thought. And the world out there is just kind of extended stuff. It's matter arranged in various ways. And how do these two things? Uh, it seems that we affect the world out there and that the world out there affects us, but how does that work? And so you get these problems. Uh, and so then there's a history of people trying to deal with that problem, uh, proposing ways in which the mind and body could interact. Um, I mean, it uh, is at that point where Dennett often talks about, I mean, that's exactly where the split, the Cartesian, once the Cartesian split occurs, we're basically running down a certain direction uh, and we cannot stop at that point. And I think that's pretty much where your problem with the mind-body problem lies. I think so, because I think, and um, uh, you mentioned Dennett there. Yeah, yes, I think, yes. Well, yes, and I, I, I'm very much um, uh, a follower of Dennett. And um, what Dennett thinks has happened, and I think he's right about this, is that for a long time, it was quite possible to think that this private mental world it is, 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 a, is an immaterial soul, something like that, it's a separate thing. So that we were bodies, which were part of this, uh, this external world, and then we were also souls. In fact, we were what we really were, um, what each of us really was, was a soul. Mm -hmm. And we had a body, but that wasn't essential because when we die, the soul might continue, would continue to live, uh, uh, to exist without the body. And so it was quite possible to think, yes, there is this separate mental world. It's the soul, and that's and religion tells us that true. That's true, and there was not a lot of uh, pressure from science yet early, uh, to, to, to reject that view. But then as gradually as you start to have a science of, of, of the brain, as you start to um, develop the, the, um, the natural science, and particularly uh, neuroscience through the 19th century into the 20th century, it became very, very hard to maintain that view um, because it, it, seemed, it, seemed, it was increasingly obvious that the mind depended intimately on things happening in the brain and if the brain stops to functioning in the way it should your mind goes your memories go your ability to say to to speak um, um, go your perceptual abilities are damaged and so on and so on and scientists began to work out which bits of the brain are actually responsible for these things and it began to look increasingly like uh, as if there was just there just was the brain and everything that all the signs of the mind or the reactions and so on that were associated with my, with my are just being produced by the brain. So what happens then <laughs> to the mind uh, and to this private inner world? Um, and increase, uh, it, so really the progress of 20th century philosophy of mind was very much a, well, again, one strand in that, you, that, in that history that you can tell is that philosophers were trying to explain what we're doing when we talk about the mind. If we're not talking about an immaterial soul, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Are we talking about nothing at all? Some suggested, some eliminativist um, um, suggested that really this mind talk isn't picking out anything at all. And we should just go and ask the neuroscientists to tell us how to, to describe uh, people's, uh, how to explain people's behavior. 
And that's specifically Paul and Patricia Churchland. I mean, they... Uh, they're the most famous advocates of that. Mm. Others said that, well, really all we're doing when we talk about people's minds, about their, their beliefs and their desires and so on, is we're sort of characterizing how they're disposed to behave. Um, just as if you say that somebody's an angry person, you don't mean that they've got some private sort of world of anger inside them that is forcing their, them to behave in certain ways. You mean they just they just have all these tendencies to react in certain ways, and if if, if you annoy them a little bit, they start. You know. And so they thought that um, people such as Gilbert Ryle, though again, this it's a bit of a caricature to describe him simply as a behaviorist. They thought that when we talk about people's minds, we really talk about their tendencies to to react to things. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the, 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 the consensus view that was emerging from the 1950s onwards is that really we're talking uh, about, the, about the brain, about brain activity, but in some very schematic sort of way. Mm -hmm. We're not talking the, the details of what's happening in the brain, we don't know that, but we're talking about large scale uh, um, patterns of activity in the brain, if you like. About there. So when we talk about perceptions, we're talking about the brain, uh, brain states that uh, are produced by uh, from the processing of sensory inputs um, and that encode a lot of information about our immediate environment and that can then be used by other brain systems to guide uh, our reactions, to guide behavior, to form beliefs and memories and so on. And so you can think of, of when we're talking about the mind, we're sort of talking in a very schematic way mm -hmm. about what the brain's doing. So if you think of Descartes, form, which, which other philosophers would you say post Descartes started to change your reading while you were starting to read about this growing up or from any point in your life when you were reading about this? Would you say it was people like Hume, Berkeley, um, oh. the new empiricist movement? Because I think that sort of shapes certain empirical views on reality as well. I certainly liked Hume, though not so much as a philosopher of mine, but... Uh, but um, uh, um, I, 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 I liked his, um, uh, more than anything, I think I liked his way of approaching philosophical problems mm. and I liked the way he wrote. Um, but of course he still had a lot of, um, I guess, Cartesian assumptions about uh, the, the idea that, uh, about the mind being a private world, which is known better than the rest of, of mm. reality. And that, so he, you know, he, he was, he thought that we couldn't really answer this sort of skepticism as to whether there is an external, really an external world. Um, but that is something that has captured most philosophers. This idea that we that we know our own minds better than anything else, and uh, and so this is this is I was when I, what I was talking before was was a sort of long detour, and I was trying to get around um, to this um, this um, point that we we had this we gradually got this consensus, and I suppose from the 1950s, 60s onwards that mental talk is just about the brain, but still. So you would think, okay, so we've got rid of all that Cartesian stuff. They've got rid of this idea of there being an immaterial soul, got rid of this idea of there being a, this special private inner world. It's just the brain and the brain isn't, the brain is immensely complex and immense, wonderful piece of, of, of uh, biological um, um, machinery, if you like, but you know, it's not a separate thing from the rest of the, of, of the world. It's just a complex part of it. But no, this is the problem. A lot of even people who had thoroughly embraced this view of this, this brain-centered view of, of the mind still had, and this is where we come back to Dennett, these Cartesian intuitions about there is, yes, there is still this world of consciousness in there somehow. Now, of course, they, 
they'd rejected the view that this depended on a, an immaterial soul. So they had to say somehow the brain was producing it. Okay, so somehow, and, and so they had this kind of dualistic picture of the brain now. On the one hand, the brain was doing stuff that we kind of could understand in physical terms. It was processing information, if you like. And we had all this, these developments in computing theory from the middle of the um, uh, 20th century, which kind of gave us a sort of handle on that. Yeah, the brains are sort of like a very, like a complex biological computer, sort of. You know, it, it was a metaphor and it's not, you know, uh, completely accurate, but it gave us a grip on. So that's what the brains are. But then at the same time, there's this other aspect that it seems to be somehow producing this private world of experience, this private inner world that, that they can't talk about. So the brain seems to be doing these two things somehow, uh, processing information, which we can kind of understand, and producing this kind of magical inner world. And so then you get, so this kind of worry had been in the background I think of materialist theories of mind right, right through the, 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 the 60s and 70s and 80s. But then, of course, in the mid-90s, David Chalmers, Australian uh, philosopher of mind, one of the most eminent uh, contemporary philosophers of mind, really woke people up to it and said, look, there are, there are two completely different sort of sets of problems here. There's the what he called the easy problems, explaining how the brain does all that information processing, how it processes the signals from the sensors and uses the information to to regulate behavior and so that's there. He called them easy problems, not because they're really easy, but because they're kind of problems we know how to approach. We've got a sort of angle on them yeah, because the, they look like regular scientific easy problems. About the easy problem, it's basically talking about <laughs> neuroscience. <laughs> neuroscience, yeah, yeah, yeah. science is not easy. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree. But it, it looked easy relative to the other one, and the other one was how the brain, how all the this mass of billions of neuro interconnected neurons produce this private world of experience. And that looks, that looks really, really hard because it seems to be producing something that just doesn't exist anywhere else in, in the world that science has no precedent for. And that moreover is inaccessible to science. Science can, uh, scientists can probe my brain and scan my brain and look and, uh, and potentially you know, at every neuron firing there but they're not going to see this in the world. They're not going to detect what it's like to be me, what it's like to be my private well, That's only for me. So it seems that the, the brain is producing something that has no precedent elsewhere that can't be scientifically studied. Well, of course, this is <laughs> meat and drink to philosophers. They say, hey, there's something here uh, that, uh, uh, that science can't, can't, can't uh, handle. And so we can go for metaphysical speculation. And this is, of course, and the hard the, problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness. And it, it leads you into metaphysical. You've got, you, you, the response of many philosophers has been to say, okay, science only tells us about part of reality. There's another part of reality that science can't get a grip on. And let's, let's theorize about it and try and you know, explain this other dimension of reality. Now, really, now, and there's been some very clever work done in, in this field. I, I, I have no wish to disparage people doing this. I think they're very clever people and pursuing that project, they're doing, you know, they're pursuing it seriously and with integrity and they're, within that framework, they're doing good work. But really, I think they're not, they're not much further on the Descartes in some ways, mm. because all they have are a bunch of intuitions and then they're trying to make about this inner world and then they're trying to make 
the best uh, metaphysical framework for explaining those intuitions. And I mean, one example of this is um, the movement that is quite popular nowadays and that I've some interest in, which is panpsychism. And the idea here is, well, this private inner world thing, it seems that brains have it, right? Brains produce it. But why should just brains produce it? After all, it's not a matter of information processing. That's a separate thing. Somehow the brain just has this extra thing just by being the thing it is. It's not due to it doing certain things, but just being the way it is. So maybe other things have it too. In fact, maybe everything has it. Maybe the complex inner world that we have is the product of the combination of lots and lots of smaller private worlds that the components of our brains have. Maybe every little electron and every elementary particle has a little tiny private world. When you put these together in the right way, you get big private worlds like the ones we've got in our, in our heads. And that's a, kind of, that's a, that's a reasonable <laughs> inference. <laughs> the difficult given, for us for many people. But they are, given the way you, about it, there are also some neuroscientific theories that there sort are. of the panpsychist view. If you take into information, integrated information theory, I mean, they sort of exactly. also making the assumption that you can begin with consciousness and move your way upward. That's the crucial thing. They begin with this picture of the, the private inner world. They begin with that. Now, if you start there and you say, yes, well, that's real. That's definitely real. In fact, perhaps it's the only thing that I'm really sure of. And then you go down this route. And okay, have a look down that route, see what's there. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're on the right track, but maybe, just maybe, those intuitions you started with about the private inner world are not reliable. Maybe it seems to us in some sense that there's this private inner world. Maybe that's uh, when, we ref when we sort of try to think about ourselves and our relation to the, to the wider world, we get this kind of picture of ourselves as being something in here some something smaller than our bodies, as it were, something inside ourselves that is inhabiting some world that is uh, special for us, rather than just being complex organisms that inhabit the public world. Mm -hmm. We get that picture, but maybe, maybe that picture is a distortion. Maybe it's it's a, it's a sort of illusion. Now that's the view that I try to to explore. And, and so I think so, I think. Sorry. Let's just let's think about this and summarize this a little. So we know that they started off with this Cartesian split. I mean, we know Rene Descartes, Cartesian dualism. Once that split occurs, people are now set on a path, trying to figure out these two different realities and how they sort of come together. This mind-body connection, in a sense, which is basically what this entire podcast is based on. Um, and what you're saying is, at some point, you have to realize that a lot of our intuitions, a lot of our perceptions a lot of our experiences are basically interpretations of certain stimulus, certain stimuli, um, and we have the tendency to make mistakes and errors due to certain, uh, let's say, limited resources or poor processing power, etc. Because uh, I think the two most misunderstood views on consciousness currently are panpsychism and illusionism. Um, Illusionism sounds like a very metaphysical theory. It sounds like you're basically telling everyone um, nothing exists. There is, there is no conscious experience. And, and, and I think that's exactly where people have this problem and come, come to you and say, listen, how can you tell me that the one thing that means the most to me 
does not exist. You're telling me that when I kick my, when I bang my leg onto, onto an object and experience the pain of the pain, that's just not existent. That's just non-existent. How can you tell someone that? I, I'm not telling people that. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I agree that that the, the use of the word illusion is um, is fraught with, uh, with with risk <laughs> in that way. And any single word would be. I, I will stand by it, and maybe we can come on to why I like it. Um, it would be it's better, I think, than having a word like eliminativism or irrealism, and just saying these. Mm-hmm. That, 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 I'm, I'm saying there's at least there's an illusion, <laughs> but. I'm not saying that you know that pain doesn't exist. Obviously, I mean there's some some people, uh, some philosophers interpret what I'm saying as saying, look, we 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 don't have any experiences. You know, we don't we don't see, we don't hear, we don't feel. We don't. Not saying that. Not saying that. Um, we can just point to occasions when we're having an experience. You know, I I you know I stub my toe. There, you're you're feeling pain. That's that's real. That's definitely happening. Uh, I, I look at a beautiful sunset and the experience of the golden colors and so on. That's real. I'm having a visual experience. I listen to a piece of music. I'm having a, a, the auditory experience. That's real. The question is, what is it? Not that it's the, the, the it's reality. The reality of this state we call pain is, is, is not doubted. Mm-hmm. What I'm doubting is what the nature of pain, the nature of visual experience of what it is to taste and smell and see. And my, what I would try and sum it up very, very uh, uh, simply, I would say that the competing pictures are something like this. The, the, the sort of Cartesian picture is that uh, um, stimuli hit my senses, you know, you know, electromagnetic radiation or whatever it is, or chemi- chemicals in the air or pressure waves. They hit my sense and they create a kind of inner world of color and smell and taste and so on. So the colors out there, as we conceive of them, they're not really there. They're, they're created in a private world in my mind, whatever my mind is in this case, um, which I, as some sort of inner observer, am then aware of in a, in a very certain way. So they create this private world of experience. I interpret. I, I, I feel it. Similarly, when I'm in pain, the pain receptors in my in my toe say they send these signals, and that creates the pain somehow in my mind, not in my toe, in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's the view I'm rejecting. I'm saying this idea that it's all created in some private. Yes, in, in a sort of inner homunculus. So people tend to think there is some sort of a being, a Cartesian theater. Someone's watching all of this happen. Which then also exactly. then question because there's an infinite regress. You're going to constantly look for what whatever that person's thinking about, whatever the exactly. How do you explain this is thinking about, and so on? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it's a completely unexplanatory picture because the the problem is how am I experiencing the world? Well, the story is well. There's this little thing in your head that the, the world is creating another world in your head, a world of of, of of private experience, and there's some other little observer in your head that is experiencing that. Okay, we've answered it. No, you haven't, because now you need to explain how the little thing in your head is experiencing the private world. Does it have a little thing in it? It it doesn't explain anything. Mm. So the alternative picture is to say that this is what's happening. We're being bombarded with stimuli. We here being the whole organism. Okay, the whole big, you know, sort of clumsy embodied biological thing that lumbers around. Okay, 
in my case anyway. And so we're being bombarded with stimuli and our brains are reacting to it in a massively complex uh, range of ways. Mm -hmm. It's adjusting its own internal states uh, in incredibly complex ways so that it will be differently poised to react to the next round of stimuli. Mm forming expectations of what's coming next, dispositions to react to what's coming next. It may also be producing overt behavior, but the main effect is internal. Internal in the sense that it's, in, it's happening in the brain, not in some private world. And that is experience, that massively complex interaction with the world. And our sense that it's happening in a private world is due to the fact that we also have some kind of uh, uh, higher level mechanisms in the brain that monitor what is happening in the brain and react to that. Mm-hmm. So the brain is reacting to the world and there are other systems in the brain that are reacting to the reacting. Mm-hmm. And it's this reacting, to, I'm sorry, it's this reacting to the reacting that creates this sense that we as a whole have that there's a private inner world makes us say, yes, but there's this, this, there's this, this world in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's all a matter for me of reactions, not of presentations in some private world. Mm-hmm. Experiencing the world is about the world impacting on me and me reacting. It's, so it, it's it's and, even and, there's a private and, inner world is a matter of me reacting to that reacting. Yes. Yeah, and it's important to note. So it's and they are interacting as well. So it's a continuous yes. loop. It's a feedback loop. Yes, no dynamic. Just yeah, entering and that's it. And then you're sort of producing an experience. You are directly influenced by the real world because then people will, will start to have this perception that you're sort of creating an idealist view of everything sort of, or, or be, some people will sort of think that there is some sort of, sorry, some people will think there is some form of dualism here. Um, if, if you're merely reacting to certain stimulus um, and, and not interacting with it, because, yes, okay. because at that point, there is no link between the two. Absolutely no, I, I I couldn't agree more. It's um it's an engagement with the world. Yes. There's a t- there's a temptation to think. Look, think about qualities in the world, the blueness of the sky, um, the the, the 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 bitterness of the coffee, the pain in my toe. There's a tendency to think that those are sort of qualities that are out there in the world, and in a sense, I think they are, but they're not out there in the way that, as it were, uh, we. Uh, commonsensically conceive of them. It's not that the, 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 we know that the blueness is really just a, 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 a matter of light rays of a certain wavelength being uh, refracted or whatever and, and, and hitting my eye. So we think that, so science kind of tells us the blueness isn't out there in that sort of naive way that you thought it was. It's, to, it's, it's partially created by you. After all, you might be hallucinating the blueness. Um, uh, uh, or you might be seeing an after image of the blueness. So the blueness is kind of in you. Now, the, this is where the big mistake happens, I think. Uh, people think, okay, so it's not out there, this sort of pure qualitative essence of blue, so it must be in here. It's like there's, got, there's a sort of blue paint on the world, and if it's not out there, then it must be somehow in here. Well, of course, it's not in here in my brain, so it must be in some other world of, 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 of mental reality. I don't think the blueness in that sense is there at all. I think the blueness is an interaction between me and the world. Mm-hmm. But the blueness is me being sensitive to something in the world and reacting to it. And inherently, when, and you, say, about, and when you think about the blueness itself, it's technically 
the only electromagnetic radiation that's bounced off the object. So that object is actually every other color but blue. So you're, you're completely misinterpreting the object itself <laughs> by but, nature. Uh, but this is, but what, it, uh, what is happening is an interaction, uh, a very complex perceptual uh, uh, interaction with the world. And the language we talk about it, the language mm -hmm. of blueness and qualities and so on, that's uh, a way we have of articulating this complex reaction. And, and sharing information about it. It's, I, I can see something blue. I cannot describe to you the complexity of the interaction because I just don't understand it. I don't know about it. And I don't need to know about it. I just need to recognize it when it's happening. Okay? So I'm in this complex interaction with uh, uh, a certain feature of the world. And I say to you, oh, it's blue, or it's too bitter, or it hurts. And that's enough for the purposes of communication. My brain has given me some kind of access to what's to, to the reactions. There's some sort of monitoring so I can report that this is happening again. I'm in this state again. And we have this cultural, um, um, uh, they have this language, this set of concepts for articulating this. And that's fine, that gets us around. The problem then is when we start, we start to ask questions about, yes, but what is that blueness? What is that pain? Okay, there's something definitely real there, this complex interaction, but it isn't some simple, pure essence of blueness. It isn't some simple essence of pain. And if you go chasing that, you're going to be chasing, it's like chasing, I guess perhaps you might, I don't know, this is an analogy I've not really used before, but meanings of words. If you say what, we use words and words create effects uh, on, on each other. We, we, we can use words to, to produce effects. And we can also use them to produce effects on ourselves. We can talk to ourselves. And words we say have meanings, mm -hmm. which is a way of encapsulating the kind of effects they have on people. But if you go off chasing, yes, but what is the meaning? And chasing, how did that word get that meaning? And how do those marks on the paper get this meaning? Mm. It's you're trying to turn an abstraction into a concrete thing that you can that you can uh, investigate, or that you need to now expand your sense of reality in order to accommodate this thing. And you don't really, if you treat it as something more like an abstraction or indeed an illusion. Mm. Um, so I think we should also then introduce certain concepts to have the discussion um, right. a little more coherently. For example, Ned Block differentiating between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Because I think that's right. precisely where a lot of people might misinterpret this illusion of consciousness. Because you're specifically talking about... Uh, an illusion of phenomenal consciousness and yeah. these this qualia, the what is it like feeling? Thomas Nagel's infamous, yes. what is it like to be a bat? You're, you're talking about that, that ineffable phenomenal experience that we tend to attribute some sort of an entity or ethereal essence-like substance, either metaphysical or non-physical. And what you're saying with illusionism is rather that that's not the case. We're rather concluding that we're having a certain experience um, using whatever limited processing power our brains might have. Yes, we're projecting that, this, this, mm. this image of qualities onto, onto what's happening, whether we're projecting them as, not literally projecting, but we're, uh, uh, we're um, sort of uh, conceptually, we're projecting them out there or in here, depending on where we think these things are. But really, what it's, it's, a, it's a framework we have for, uh, describing this, uh, what's happening, what's happening to us, a framework, I think, for, principally for communication, mm -hmm. um, which 
uh, we we are taking um, uh, uh, some philosophers are taking too seriously. I mean, just just to pick up on the access phenomenal uh, distinction, the, the access consciousness is supposed to be about information. It's the, the first conception. It's the idea that. Uh, I mean, our senses are continually picking up bits of information about the world around us, which influence our behavior without our really being conscious of it. We, yes. you know, as we walk down the street, we will adjust the way we walk without really being conscious of it, you know, to avoid things. And so, or if you're sitting in your chair, you will move to make yourself more comfortable without being aware that you're doing this. Um, and the idea is that a bit of perceptual information becomes conscious if it's, I mean, according to one theory, one account anyway, if it becomes widely accessible to other brain systems so that you can remember it, you can think about it, you can report it, you can have emotional reactions. And so that it were the whole system, which is me, <laughs> uh, 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 has access to it and can use it. And then it's conscious in that sense. Now, the phenomenal consciousness is supposed to be this extra thing that's at least conceptually different from that, conceptually different. And that is uh, this kind of inner glow, this feel that it has, which is something conceptually distinct from all the reactions that the information may be provoked. So the information might have all the same reactions, say you might damage your, uh, hurt your, stub your toe, and it might provoke all these complex reactions, psychological as well as behavioral, and yet you not have any feeling of pain to it, the thought is. That's, that's a description of what's called a philosophical zombie. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, reject that distinction. I think there just is access consciousness and and complex meta levels of access consciousness, access to the access, if you like. Okay? Um, but there's nothing else there. The, the, the concept is not picking out anything real other than uh, the concept of phenomenal consciousness, not picking out something real. What a lot of philosophers, among philosophers who buy that distinction between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness, there are two strands. One, say yes this phenomenal consciousness is something distinct and it's metaphysically distinct as well it's something non-physical others who say well yes it's distinct but it's still just part of what the brain's doing it's still just picking up so i don't buy the first and i think the second one is uh is not really um it's tr they're, they're trying to have their cake and eat it really trying to accept these intuitions that there's something non-physical there but explain it all uh, uh they're, they're, accept the reality of this thing that seems non-physical while saying that it isn't really non-physical, but it's still real. Mm. I don't think you can accept its reality if you want to be a, a physicalist. So I, I rambled a little bit there. but No, no, uh, no worries. Uh, it's good. I think you need to express your views because a lot of people misinterpret it quite a bit. When, <laughs> when, you, when you talk about illusionism as a theory of consciousness, um, as I said, you're, you're specifically referring to phenomenal consciousness. You're not saying mm -hmm, yeah. that any experience we're having is an illusion. You're saying that the way we experience these experiences, these phenomenal, what we call phenomenal experiences, are in fact not substantive. Um, so they do not exist as some sort of an in essence or entity in the world. But you, you talk about yeah. weak and strong illusionism. Let's All right. okay. briefly cover the All difference right. between the two of them. Oh, that's, that's good, yes, because it picks up on what I was just talking about. I should actually say that this is a quite important thing to say, actually, that illusionism is a term that I've introduced within philosophy of mind. And what I think is illusory is a certain conception of uh, consciousness as certain philosophers conceive of it. I don't think experienced consciousness as the person in the street conceives of it is illusory. It's, a, it's saying that thing you philosophers are talking about is illusory, not that thing... I think the philosophers have taken the 
the thing that we all that we all you know we're all kind of all familiar with, and imposed a certain way of thinking of that thing uh, upon themselves and upon people who listen to them, and made them think that there's something there, there isn't, and that doesn't need to be in order to account for what we're all familiar with. And that's what I'm saying is illusory. It's a, it's it's you philosophers are under an illusion, and the people who've been <laughs> who've been listening to you. Not that we're at an everyday, when I say that I've, I've got a headache, I'm not under an illusion. Mm. I'm under illusion when I impose a, theory, a philosophical theory of what a headache is. Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the, having said that, though, there may be a, and I think there probably is some um, uh, biological, psychological basis to this uh, 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 philosophical illusion. I don't think that philosophers are just making this up out of their heads. I think there are certain things about the way we experience, we introspect our own minds that tempt people to go down that route. So I think this theory is quite, this theory that I'm denying is quite natural in some ways, but it's, it's, I'm certainly not denying that we're in. in uh, I think it's, it's, it's almost, it's so, almost like having, it's almost like talking about, well, if you look at human beings, we've, we've always had this tendency to add some extra layer of existence to us or some extra added importance to us. Um, if you take the yeah. Ian Vital vitalism, we always thought there was yeah. something yeah. essence-like about that. Uh, then we always thought we were on top of the food chain. And then Darwin obviously comes around and shows us that we're not. We're, we've, we've basically come along with every other species um, and there is no top of the food chain. We've, we've all basically made it. Copernicus did the same thing. He took us out of the center of the universe because we have this tendency to give ourselves something extra. And I think that's precisely where the problem of illusionism comes in. And, and it almost helps to take us back a little bit and show us that there is, we're, it's, it's almost humble. It makes you a little I, more humble. I, I think so. I, I, do, I do think so. I, mean, I don't adopt this for ethical reasons, but I think the ethical implications of it, and we can maybe talk about this a bit later, are actually quite benign to my way of thinking. It's, we have this view of ourselves as sealed off within these private mental worlds. So I'm here in my private mental world, and then there's all this stuff that I think is probably out there, but I can't be sure of all I can be sure of. There's this little egotistical world there, and you're the same, and everyone else is the same. So we're all really sealed off in these little metaphysical bubbles. Uh, no, this no. We are part of the world. We're all part of the same world. There isn't a sort of metaphysical barrier between me and you. If I could, if I knew you well enough, um, and could, uh, uh, and I, I, I could, and I'd observed you for a long time and got to know you really well and knew how you would react to stimuli uh, in the finest way. So I knew what sort of how you would, what this would make you think and feel, and what the memories and associations this sight would call up and. Uh, and so I think I could gradually get pretty close to knowing what it's like to be you, because I would know, as it were, how you are vibrating in response to the world. You know, this is what experience is. It's you and the world, you know, the, the world stimulating you and you vibrating in response to it, you, this dynamic thing. And if I could map that, if I could trace that, follow that out in sufficient detail, I could know what it was like to be you. Uh, now it doesn't. Now it's easy to think. Well, I, 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 I couldn't. Well, because we just don't know other people in that to, to that uh, so well. Although I think perhaps if you think of couples who have lived together for a long time, uh, there is often a sense that they become something like a unit. 
yes. but their minds are it's sort of like when you think uh, about uh, telepathy and you're thinking about someone reading mm-hmm. someone's mind i mean we all do it to a certain extent every day we all do it we always know exactly. um, so that we always know if someone's upset you don't really need that many cues to understand if someone else is absolutely. feeling a certain feeling and this idea that you can see somebody suffering and sort of seriously doubt you know whether there was a real, you know, pain in the metaphysical sense. Then just look at them, for heaven's sake. You know, mm. it's easy to, um, it's easy to suppose that there's this, there's this, this barrier. Um, I mean, or, or to know what it's like to be a bat. Well, what is it like to be a bat? Well, let's study bats and study their reactions. We don't and even see know what it's like. What to they're be sensitive. To. We don't even have to go as far as bats. We don't know really what is it like to be a human. Uh, I mean, uh, we Marvin Minsky talks about we, it. I think we Marvin, don't when he's describing. Uh, computer programs and he's describing artificial intelligence and he says that um, it'll be difficult to create artificial artificial intelligence that can recognize its consciousness and and that it's conscious but then again we really do that ourselves we really recognize the fact that we're we're conscious beings we don't ever introspect on this thought as often as we think we do absolutely i i i, um, I think it's um, it's uh, um it's uh, uh, Sue Blackmore uses the, the metaphor of the fridge light. That whenever you open the whenever you open the, the 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 fridge door, the light comes on. Yes. So you think the light is on all the time. Mm. So whenever we ask ourselves, "What am I feeling now?" we get an answer. And so we think that all the time there's this world of, fee- of, 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 of feeling there that is sort of vivid and glowing like the fridge light, and that we only have to sort of direct our attention to it. No, it's more like I think. A lot of the time, we're just kind of on autopilot. We're just there in the world, engaging with the world, going around doing our stuff. And whenever we pause for a moment to say, wait a minute, what was that? Did I see that correctly? Then it suddenly seems like we're accessing this this private world. But most of the time, we don't feel we're living in our heads. We feel we're living in the world as completely embodied creatures reacting with the world. We're not living in a private... This private mental world is a sort of construction that we come to when we're very, very reflective. I mean, it's no coincidence. You know, how did this all start? Not with Descartes sort of out, you know, fencing or whatever. He was a fencer, wasn't he? You know, it was when he withdrew himself into his, um, was it, was it his kitchen set by his stove, wrapped himself up in his cloak, excluded the world and started doing pure thought. Well, yes, maybe that's, you do get into that sort of, um, uh, you do conceive of the, of the mind-body problem in that way when you do that. But when, you're, when your mind is actively engaged with the world, when it's uh, guiding you in fencing or whatever, or whatever you might be doing, then uh, it doesn't feel so distinct. But, I even, but I, feel, even when somebody does exclude everything from, a, from an external perceptive experience, for, for example, your visual system, your auditory system, olfactory, yes. you exclude all of that, merely sitting down, in a blanket, trying to exclude everything. It's impossible to exclude no C-ception, pain reception, chemo reception, yes, yes. every other yes. internal receptor that's still functioning, no matter what you're doing, whether you're meditating, yes. whether you're exercising, these are all still yes. running at, at every point at all times. So Absolutely. we're still formulating yes. judgments and conclusions based on that prior information. Yeah, you're still buzzing with in reaction to your own body. I mean, we, we, it's... This, if, I, if there's one thing I'd like to do, at least, to get people to sort of give up this static, sort of static picture of consciousness as something being presented. I mean, this is this is, uh, again. It's, Dan Dennett has um, talked about the, you know, the 
the Cartesian theater, things being presented to consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's you know, the senses process the um, um, uh, sensory inputs and they, they sort of put it all together and create a kind of uh, uh, multimodal presentation to consciousness. And, and, and Dan says, and then what happens? When this has been presented to consciousness, what happens then? Consciousness, whatever that is, you know, <laughs> the self or whatever is observing, has to react. Mm -hmm. And now suppose you could produce all those reactions without the presentation. You just sort of cut from the incoming uh, uh, processing to the reactions and you cut out the, the presentation. How does that make, you know, what have you lost? You've not lost anything. It's everything's in the reactions on the impact that the world is making upon you. I must say, and, when, with, Dennett's, with Daniel Dennett's views, when I first was trying to figure out consciousness myself, when I was trying to dive in deep, try and figure out what is consciousness, what is, because we all have these questions. Growing up, I grew up in South Africa, Indian parents, um, a lot of links with, the, with Hinduism, Buddhism, a lot of the views. So there's always this spiritual side of it, but I didn't grow up very religious. So I always had this scientific uh, slash philosophical view of the world. So I started to figure out what, try to understand what is consciousness? What is this reality? And for the longest time, I think probably till my, till I was about 24 or so, I had the emergentism view. So I, I, I figured that you work your way up. You, you start from physics, go up to chemistry, biology, physiology, then somehow psychology will appear. And it's just something that happens. The more complex the levels become, um, the more you, you could have this phenomena. For example, if you take uh, multiple streets and houses, it somehow becomes a city. There's, there's no real clear distinction as to how it becomes that city. But at that point, it eventually is. Uh, if you take enough houses, enough people, enough whatever. But the more I read into it, the more I read De Dennett's book, I mean, Consciousness Explained, Moving Up, um, and then reading about it and realizing more about our perceptions, our experiences, how much we actually don't know regarding our own introspective experiences. Um, the illusory, so a lot of these illusions, if you look at blindsight, uh, attention blindness, if you look at uh, th things that illusionists and experts in the sleight of hand I'm talking about in this case, do to trick our perceptual limitations, it really exposes the irony behind this, I, this naive realism we have towards reality. I mean, we, we assume we know exactly what's going on around us at all times. And therefore, it's easy yes. to conclude we know what's going on inside and, as well. And illusionism really is, is, if you like, just implying that insight that is quite widely shared about perception. The perception is sort of uh, selective and to some extent uh, distort, distorting and caricaturing. It's providing us with the information about the world that we need. Not yeah. with everything that's happening, it stands what we need to know. It's really just applying that insight to introspection itself, to when we look inwards and see what's happening inside. Our, well, I was going to say, would we say mind or brain? I don't mean minds in the private sense. I mean, when we look what's happening in, in, inside us, inside our brains. Again, it gives us a schematic idea. It's, it, you're in that state again. Which one? I don't, you, know, you don't need to know in detail. It's that, that one that's a bit like that other one and that you know, has that kind of uh, range of effects on you. And so on. Uh, so it's... it's Introspection too is presenting a selective, distorted, caricatured view of what's happening inside us, I think, which is all we need. I think Dennett describes it as um, 
It is an illusion of the brain for the brain by the brain. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. No. and I like that. But let me just say something about emergentism there, because I, I, a lot of people like this idea of emergentism. And the, I think there's a way of thinking about emergence, which is perfectly okay and fine. And there's a way of thinking about it, which I think is, I think is, is quite um, uh, suspect. And the idea that, you know, as you put... <laughs> components together and in more and more complex ways you get more and more complex structures with more um, with, with, that can do more more interesting things that's perfectly true build a computer and as you put the things together you can do more stuff um, um, uh, that's fine as you, as you as you say if you assemble as you assemble buildings and, and, and civic structures and so on and so on you, and roads and eventually you get a city and there's nothing mysterious about that we can understand how it happens we maybe can't draw a hard line and say now it's a city when previously it wasn't, but you know, it's just all there is to being a city is having enough of these sort of civic structures put together in the right sort of way, and it's intelligible. There's no mystery about it. How did it become a city? It wasn't that something extra happened to make it into a city? The trouble with um, thinking about uh, uh, the, 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 the dodgy sense of, it, of, of emergence is the idea that when you get to a certain level of complexity, kind of new things pop into existence that, that completely new features or new powers new causal powers pop into existence that are not explainable in terms of the components. So it'd be as if you put together a computer and you know, it could do all the regular things of the computer, but suddenly it got some extra power that you'd not predicted and you can't explain, you know, suddenly it's, I don't know, it can levitate or something. There's no uh, explanation for this, just that when you put enough computer parts together, the thing floats and nobody has any idea why. Mm. Uh, or that when you get a city of a certain size, maybe it suddenly starts, I don't know, it starts glowing or something, inexplicably. And all you can say is, when you put things together in a complex enough way, that happens, but we have no idea why. And that's very different from the other sort of illusion, which is that when you organize things in complex structures, you get, uh, they can do more and more complex things, but it's understandable how that happens. Okay, you couldn't possibly design something to emerge in the second sense, because you can't predict it would happen. You just got to copy cases where it has happened. And the trouble with that sort of emergence is that it gives a sort of license to people to um, uh, to hang on to their belief in things, even though they can't explain them. So you say there's this extra ingredient, uh, there's this extra uh, ingredient to consciousness that can't be explained in brain terms. No, it just emerges. Mm. Yeah, I think, do you, I say, do you think that that type of thinking stems from the fact that quantum physics has suddenly <laughs> shifted the way people because I was talking to Michael about this, Graziano. We were discussing how how much he dislikes the fact that the the fact that we have no understanding of quantum mechanics and cannot explain how suddenly this becomes physical reality, that must have something to do with consciousness as well. Because we it's the only other thing that we know and just cannot explain. And he, he does not like to talk about it. Uh, uh, do you think that that's exactly where this emergentism view, the strong version of emergentism kind of stems from the fact that reality has been shifted since Einstein and uh, a lot of the Copenhagen, the guys with quantum mechanics have changed reality for us. It gives, it gives support to people who want to say, they want to say, look, uh, just something fundamentally new happens in brains when you get them to a certain level of complexity, something fundamentally new that we couldn't have predicted from the components or we can't explain in terms of the components occurs. You could have said the same thing about life. You could have said when you put biological components together in a certain way, at some point it becomes alive. 
And that becoming alive is something extra to it having all the components, the heart and the lungs and the, everything, and the skeleton and so on, all organized together. It suddenly acquires this extra function of life, extra feature of life, which gives it new powers. Um, now, and even if you look at life itself, we, we also have such blurry lines when we talk about life. What do we really sure. consider to be life in the first place? But a if you want to be an emergent, be uh, a fetus. Uh, at what point are we right. going to yeah. conclude? Uh, and that takes it into a very dark topic. Well, if you're an emergent, you're going to have to say that, you know, there is some point, I guess, at which this emerges. And we, you know, yeah. where, it, where it didn't have it before, and then suddenly it emerged. And that, of course, is a problem with, with consciousness. Where does that emerge, both developmentally and uh, across species? Which species has it emerged in? Has it emerged that we can look at the brain systems that, that a certain creature has, say, uh, an octopus, do those brain systems cause consciousness, uh, consciousness to emerge? How do we know? We're not octopi. Octopodes? Octopi? Anyway, uh, to come back to um, the quantum physics, I think people who want to take that view, they can, you know, say, well, and I, I suppose I say, well, look, that's just, okay, you're just introducing mystery there into how this happens. It just sort of jumps from one state into another with no, um, with no prior physical explanation, and that's you know, and, so, and they say, but that's what's happening in in physics. You know, the, the, the physics. Surely you accept that physics is a is a hard science. It's the hardest of them all. It's fundamental. And they're talking about weird stuff like this. So why can't we have weird stuff like this in neuroscience and um, and so on? I can see that it's it's rhetorically it's a useful device, mm. but I don't think there's any evidence at all that those processes actually. That, that, that quantum processes have anything to do with consciousness, although some people think they do, or that consciousness is in some way analogous to them. I don't think they're at different ends of the spectrum, you know, levels of complexity. Okay. Um, uh, I don't think that the, I mean, look, the brain, here's a nice one that Daniel, a nice example that Daniel, Daniel uses. The brain is made of, I don't, how, many, uh, how many billion um, neurons? 86. 80 billion. 86. I think about 86 billion. 86 billion. Okay. Yeah. Now, each of those is just, you know, a little cell. It's not, you know, not that much different from a yeast cell. So in a bowl of yeast, there's about 86 billion yeast cells. There's not, you know, the difference is in how they're connected up mm. and how they're interacting with each other. And that's the place to look in that massive uh, um, uh, complexity Connect, connective, uh, sorry, massive connective complexity. That's the place to look for, for what separates the brain from the yeast cells, not in some sort of magical metaphysical extra uh, that's somehow compatible to the things that happen at the basic level of physics. Mm. We're dealing with complex evolved biological structures here, not with the basic physical components of the universe. Mm. And it's natural to think that, that I mean, everywhere we look in biology, there's a immense complexity and it's evolved complexity it's been selected for its effect why think that it's any different with the mind with consciousness it's and also another I very complex evolved feature you're also introduced to a problem of trying to then attribute consciousness to other beings because now we have to look at certain beings and try to determine is this being conscious is this one not um and michael and i were discussing just about three days ago we were talking about how trying to attribute consciousness to people also is very problematic, um, especially when you take into account psychiatric patients and certain psychiatric conditions. Um, when you look at someone who's highly dosed on certain antipsychotics and the way they look less conscious, and it, it's easy to make an attribution that that person is less conscious 
than you are. Um, to show just how much it functions kind of like a spectrum, how much we determine how conscious we really are. And I know, as you mentioned, Susan Blackmore, the more we conclude that we're having these phenomenal experiences, the more you're likely to then get stuck in a fixed false belief. And that's how she introduces delusionism. Because then at that point, you're, you're forced to then constantly conclude that you're having these experiences. So just while we're on that, let's talk about some of the people who do support illusionism as a theory of consciousness because it's backed by me. So, sorry, I just, I, I'm conscious that I didn't ask you, answer your question about weak and strong illusionism. Oh, yes, okay, Shall I just do that before, yeah, so let's, before let's we go? Because I, I somehow let's, took, let's touch on weak took a long detour. So let me just answer that question then, and then, then you come back with the, with the one that you're at, uh, the illusionist there. A weak and strong illusionism. Um, it goes something like this. Uh, people make this distinction between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Access consciousness in the sense of information processing and then phenomenal consciousness in the sense of this, this feel that, that, ex that the experience seems to have from the inside. And now, if you're a non-physicalist, you're gonna say, well, you know, this, this phenomenal consciousness, it's, it's kind of some extra property of the brain in addition to its physical ones. But a lot of people hunt, um, um, don't wanna say that. They wanna say, no, no, we're, we're, we're physicalists. Um, but still, we don't want to deny that phenomenal consciousness is real. There really is this kind of, um, they, they still hold on to a lot of these Cartesian intuitions, and but they want to combine it with physicalism. So they say, look, this thing you're talking about, phenomenal consciousness, this, 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 this world of mental qualities, it's real but physical. Now, that means they've got to say that we're not quite right about it. Because, for instance, some of the things that people want to say about phenomenal consciousness uh, are that it's uh, that it's completely private, you know, that, it, that it's absolutely inaccessible to anybody else. Now, if it's just a physical state, then that can't be true, because physical states are, 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 are not private in that way. They're accessible to, to, to neuroscience. So if you want to say that phenomenal consciousness is real but physical, you're going to have to say that it's an illusion to think that it's really radically private in that way. Similarly, you're going to have to say probably that it's an illusion to say that it's completely ineffable, that it can't be described. If it's a physical state, then you can give a physical description of it. So they're going to have to say that's an illusion too. Um, and of course, they're going to say that it's an illusion to think that it's something non-physical that could exist without, that you could have the, 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 a, a physical copy of the brain that didn't have this property because it is just a physical property. So they're gonna to have to say, people who want to be realists about phenomenal consciousness, uh, but physicalists are gonna to have to say that we're quite wrong about, about phenomenal consciousness in various ways. So they're gonna to have to say that those features of phenomenal consciousness are illusory. So phenomenal consciousness is real, but it's an illusion to think that it's non-physical, that it's ineffable, that it's really private and so on. But it's still real, they say. Now I call that weak, illusionism because it's still accepting that phenomenal consciousness is real that these yeah. qualia of course i don't think use the word qualia qualia is the name for these fields which what it's like this is that they're real but it's an illusion to think they have these 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 strange properties so the weak okay? illusionist so the so the weak version of illusionism is in other words not quining qualia there it's not quining qualia it's saying qualia are real but they don't have these weird properties mm -hmm. now my objection that i've that one of my in fact for my own personal 
uh, history on this. The way I came to illusionism was by just saying, I just can't make sense of this then. If these things are don't have any of those properties, what are they? You know, what's left when you take away all of those, supposedly, all of those uh, uh, problematic properties when you say they're not, um, they're not private, they're not. So you certainly say, well, you're dismantling the whole Cartesian picture, but you're saying, but it's still, there's still something there. What? If all that's left there is whatever brain processes are causing me to think that I have qualia, if that's all that's left of the notion of qualia, that there's something causing me to think I've got it, I, I have them. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a bit. All that's left is the notion of some brain processes that cause me to think that I've got phenomenal consciousness. Then that's not really phenomenal consciousness at all. Mm. If it's something more than that, what is it? What 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 is this feel once it's been stripped of all these 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 problematic properties? So I thought, you know, you can't really being a weak illusionist is a sort of cop out. It's saying, yeah, I want to be a physicalist. I want to respect take the scientific perspective on this, but I still got these intuitions and still there's something and don't like it. <laughs> now, the strong illusionist sort of bites the bullet and says, no, the whole, the whole thing's uh, uh, illusory. And then at that point, uh, you will now call phenomenal experiences, quasi-phenomenal experiences or pseudo-phenomenal uh, experiences. What I mean by that is simply whatever it is that's causing me to, yes. I mean, I'm certainly have this impression, if you like, in uh, some sense of there being phenomenal projects. I'm inclined to say that I think that I have them, even I you know, can get myself in the frame of mind where I think, yeah, there is this inner world. And there's something that's causing me to think that. There's something that something's happening in my brain explains why I, I'm tempted to think that. That needs explaining. So there's, there's I call them zero qualia, quasi-phenomenal properties, whatever it is that causally explains my sense that I have phenomenal properties. But that's just some, that, that's just some uh, very complex feature of my of, of my brain it's not that's something that can be explained in in regular sort of information processing terms i suppose uh it's not capturing anything genuinely qualitative and feely and so on so i think the idea is that the weak my, my sense is that the weak position which has been the orthodox one in among many philosophers of mind really just just can't do it and you've got to either go full out and be a some sort of dualist and accept that there really is something extra here some extra metaphysical or be a uh, an illusionist so illusionist is really sort of consistent physicalism i think um, yeah so uh, illusionism in the sense is more like an epistemological illusion rather than an ontological illusion uh, no, it's the it's the illusion that something exists that doesn't exist. So, so no, yeah, so technically it would then be also an ontological illusion um, that is explained epistemologically as something real. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, I think that's right. Yes. yes, yes, yes. It's the illusion that something exists that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, it's an ontological illusion. Yeah. Um, but it's created... Um, yes, yes, I think, yes. Um, it's yeah. okay, so... When, the question you were you were starting on. Yeah, so let's let's think about some of the supporters of illusionism because I know Daniel Dennett's one of them. And primarily, when I was going on this journey trying to figure out consciousness, he was the one that uh, that started to get me to think about it very differently. I, it was one of my turning points. Um, but another thing that really got me to start thinking about illusionism that had nothing to do with my reading was more interacting with patients and clinical encounters when. When you start to see how certain aspects of their reality can shift and change based on, on certain neurological deficits, certain psychiatric deficits, it's very easy to see how we can manipulate our reality and our conclusions based on reality. So, 
for example, someone who has hemispatial neglect, someone who has a stroke, someone who has any sort of neurological fallout can make very strong and false claims regarding the, or confabulations regarding their experiences. Uh, so that's what fascinated me most. And as I read on and read on, I, st I stumbled across your theory of illusionism. Uh, and I felt like it fits, it describes exactly what I'm feeling, or what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. Um, not phenomenally, of course, but quasi-phenomenally. <laughs> In an everyday sense, feeling. I'm not happy with the everyday. I really, I, I, I feel for those who who believe that that you are sort of attacking their their right to existence i mean um, the, i think that anybody who's claiming that you're doing that has not read the work enough and just does not understand it so with that being said let's let's talk about some of the supporters i mean in your you were the editor for illusionism as a theory of consciousness and in that in that book you you have people like susan blackmore nicholas humphrey Daniel Dennett, Michael Graziano, uh, Pierre Boom, all these people defending this theory. Some very, Joshua Barks, one of those people who also defend the theory. A lot of highly intellectual thinkers with some really great theories of consciousness all seem to also draw the same conclusion. Let's talk about some of that. Mm. Um, first of all, let me just say something about what you said about the, the clinical case. I think this is really, really interesting. And this is a thing that's central to Dennett's um, um, approach to this. Um, there is, what's really interesting is to look at cases where this this our sense of this of this Cartesian in a world breaks. Yeah, down. so there's a lot of them. If you take let's let's take for example, if someone has a split brain. I was talking I was talking about this just the other day. If if you cut the corpus callus, callus if if you cut the corpus callosum. Uh, and have a corpus callosectomy. You split the brain into two. And at that point, Michael Gazzaniga describes this now as the brain having two illusions, two different. So the yeah. brain is almost constructing multiple illusions of experience. Um, because if the left side, if the left hemisphere is telling you to do something to the right side, um, and the right, right hemisphere is telling your left side of your body to do something, they can both disagree. So at that point, it's clear that you can almost have two, there is no unitary consciousness. So that, that, that entire conclusion that we draw, this attribution that there is one unitary space is already a mistake. So I think that's one clinical encounter. I, absolutely. And, and I, I really hope that, this, that um, this, this line of investigation can be pursued because I think it's, it's, the, mo it's the best way perhaps of, of, of empirically testing this approach. Um, to see what light it sheds on these cases. Let's go back to Dennett. You asked about the people. The, um, I coined the term illusionism, but Dennett has is the um, uh, has uh, has been writing about this for mm. far longer than I have um, um, all his career, really. And uh, he, he has used the notion of illusion frequently. I mean, I borrowed the notion from him, and he is the the one who has um, the claim to you know, to be the the um, the author and. Uh, uh, hopefully, I, will, I spoke to Dennett. He said, "Hopefully, he will be chatting to me soon. So, hopefully, we'll get his views in too." Brilliant. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to try to to, to summarize um, his approach in a few words, but I think one thing um, uh, that he would 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 want to say is that the brain isn't producing an uh, a 
a single account of experience. We tend to think that there is this inner world where there's of, of experience where there's a, a sort of a presentation of, of, of experience for the self that is unified and uh, coherent and everything's there in it. It's all put together, the sounds and the shapes and the colors. And there's one version of it. And that's, that's what we're experiencing. It unfolds in time. And that's our private mental world. Now, one thing that Dennett wants uh, to say is that that's, 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 that's an illusion because we know that the brain doesn't work like that. The brain has multiple different systems for, uh, for sensory processing and for producing reactions, control systems for producing reactions to sensory processing. And these don't all sort of channel through some central uh, region where everything is assembled and then parceled out again. Why, 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 why would the brain need to do that? Mm. The brain is the sort of the headquarters where that happens. It doesn't need to have a headquarters within the headquarters. As soon as, as Dennett says, as soon as a discrimination has been made by one sensory system, it can be put to use. You can start reacting. No point waiting until all the other sensory discriminations have been made. I mean, you, you know, that would be, from a survival point of view, that would be pretty disastrous. If you've noticed you know, something large and solid flying towards your head, if your brain system has detected that, duck, don't wait until you know, you've got auditory confirmation of it or something as well. So that's not how it works. I think a, a nice way for, to describe Dennett's views is to also look at the user illusion and what Dennett... Yes. Yeah. So the point is what's happening in the brain is there's multiple drafts, as he said, multiple drafts of experience being constructed all the time and put to use and many of them just dying away, uh, others leaving some impact on memory and so on, others not and so on. So the question then is not, you know, where is this headquarter? How is this 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 uh, unified account of experience constructed? It's why we why do we think that one is constructed? And then its answer to that is broadly that it's a story we tell ourselves because whenever we ask ourselves, well, hang on, what's happening? What am I experiencing? Whenever we do, sort of move up a level from just reacting to the world to sort of reacting to our own reacting and saying, hang on, what am I doing now? What's happening to me now? We get a, an answer. One of these streams of experience gets control of the, if you like, of the, uh, initially, the, uh, socially, you know, for, for it gets control of the vocal system. Someone says to me, what are you thinking? What are, what are you feeling? One of these streams of experience gets control of the vocal system. We say, oh, I, I note that the, um, look at that, it's, 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 it's on fire or something, or there's, there's something moving out there, or I've got this pain. Maybe you hadn't been thinking about the pain, but somebody's asked you something, oh, it's pain, yes, it's still there. And I think an, you, a great tell somebody a story. way to bring that into the clinical encounter is with Gersaniger's work, when those people, when the person's right hand basically hits it out of the left hand, they always confabulate a reason for why yeah. they did this. So yeah. they always come up with a reason that was not genuinely the reason. We tend to draw yeah. an incorrect conclusion. So that's just... And of course, the two sides of the brain come up with different stories. Mm. They're trying to make sense. They're trying to tell a story because we, you know, we... I think that that I, I think then it would be with this that a lot of this um, is, is a fairly late uh, um, evolutionary um, development and that it's to do with, uh, it's, it, it occurs in a social context. We need to explain, we, we want to share information. We want to share experience. It's an incredibly useful thing. Don't drink that, it tastes horrible. You know, that's useful to know. Somebody may not have noticed you spitting it out, but you can tell them later don't drink it it's, you know, because you have some understanding of how thing how the world impacts on you the world is impacting on us it it, it means things things around 
around around us mean things to us. They mean things to us because they have a, an effect on us. If we can register that effect and report it to others, that's incredibly useful. Also, it might be useful sometimes to conceal how things uh, 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 impact on you if they're particularly nice ones and you want to keep them to yourself. And then, of course, so we we have this way of constructing a story and whatever, and we get into the habit of continually. As Danny puts it, probing ourselves, asking what's happening now, what's this? And whenever we do, we get an answer, like the fridge light. Whenever we open the door, the light comes on. There's something there for us to tell. Mm-hmm. And we think that what we we get this sense then that what we're doing is accessing a pre-existing internal reality that was there just waiting for us to attend to it. No, it's just constructed on the fly as we need it. And the, the, the thing that really reinforces this is that we do it to ourselves as well. We don't just do it for the sake of other people. We're continually noticing what's happening to us and, talk, and maybe not explicitly talking to ourselves in, in, in inner speech, but we're continually noticing mm. what's, what our state is. Um, and this is the basis of this sense of, the, of, of, a, of a private inner world. It's a, I think it's a, like, it's a, to, Dennett also talks about the user illusion. So you're looking at a computer, yep. you're clicking on all yep. these files. It's easy to click on yep. the recycling bin but there is no recycling bin. These are, these are merely digits. These are ones and zeros. Uh, someone's designed this machine that creates this experience that you're experiencing. Yes. It's completely illusory. This, does, this recycling bin does not exist in reality. Right. Uh, but there is something there that does exist and that's very useful. And yes. the, 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 the icon gives you access to something very, very useful. It allows a certain sort of self-manipulation. Uh, manipulation of the computer, or in the case of introspection, self-manipulation is very useful. That's real. That's 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 the analog for pain. You know what's real there is the actual you know operation of deleting a file. That mm. it's just a little icon of it that is that that is illusory. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing when when you say that to people, though, of course, they say, well, well, hang on, then. So there must be a a private inner world for the for the the illusion of the desktop. Where's the illusion happening? That's 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 not the way to think of it. The illusion is for you as a whole. It's a matter of your the, the organism as a whole reacting to itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, certain things you can do to yourself by way of talking to yourself, uh, reminding yourself, stimulating yourself by um, imagining things and so on. This doesn't involve a private homunculus. It involves you, the whole organism, reacting to yourself as a whole organism. Yeah, I think at that point, it would be great to also touch on what I call the illusion delusions, because there are s- several counter arguments, some better than others, uh, some far worse. So the, the, the most common one, I would say, is if it is an illusion, who's experiencing the illusion? It's probably mm-hmm. the one I've seen the most commonly being asked to you, Dennett, and anyone. Yeah. Who can and it's, it's, it's easy to see... Um, uh, the objection, um, and but the, the thing is, what you need to realize is the objection turns on the very Cartesian picture that I'm trying to deny. So the idea is this: let's start with a perceptual illusion, okay? Not an introspective illusion, I have conscious, but a perceptual illusion. And the the way of the common way of thinking about this is: look, there's there isn't really a a uh, say I don't know a pink rat sitting on the shelf there, but there's a sort of image of a pink rat being displayed in the in the in the in my private mental world, okay, and for the little homunculus in there to observe, okay, and that's what an illusion is. It's when the thing isn't really out there, but there is a mental version of it in here, a private mental version of it in here. That's how people think of 
perceptual illusions. Now I come along and say, oh, well, actually, you know, this private mental world is itself an illusion, an introspective illusion. So they think, okay, so on the same model, I'm saying this like this Cartesian world is illusory. Okay, so that must mean that it's not really there, but it's there in some other mental world. Mm. You know, just as this mental, the, the thing that wasn't there in reality was here in this mental world. If this mental world is an illusion, then it must be present in another mental world. Mm. And so I've just kind of refuted myself because if the first one isn't there, then there must be a second one and so on and so forth. But the point is, I don't accept that account of illusion in the perceptual case. I don't think that uh, uh, hallucinating a pink rat involves there being a mental image of a pink rat in here. Mm. I think it means to be under to um, under the illusion that there's a pink rat there is for me to be reacting as if there were in a whole hugely complex range of ways, depending on the uh, emotional. Uh, um, um, uh, reactions I would have to think right, to being to having the expectations of what the, the, the rat will do next to having all, all, all the whole range of uh, calling up associations that I have with rats being disposed to to move in a certain way and so on all this massively complex range of reactions that the sight of a pink rat would present to me would, would create in me and similarly having the illusion of being uh, of having a mental world involves me having all these sort of higher level reactions appropriate to uh, that would be appropriate if there were this private mental world. So it involves, for instance, being disposed to say, look, and there's this private mental world in here. Mm. That's one of the reactions that a, a mental world would create. So it's, to me, to be under the illusion of something is for the organism to be experienced, to be having all the reactions that would be appropriate if the thing were real. Yes. And so to be uh, under perceptual illusion is to have all the reactions that, uh, that would be appropriate if the thing were there, to have the illusion of a private mental world is to have all the uh, be undergoing all the reactions that we would be appropriate if they were a private mental world. There's no circularity in that. Yeah, no, I think I and think it's not doesn't involve an inner homunculus. The thing that's having the reactions is me. Yes, the whole organism. It, it also presupposes that there has to be some sort of a self, or uh, yes, completely excludes the fact that your biological system is the one experiencing. That is the that is the per, that is the person in a sense, or the self in a sense. If you like, think about it as, yes, exactly. Think about it as we were just talking about um, with Janet, the, the idea of this creation of a narrative. For something to seem real to you is for it to get into that narrative. Mm. So for the, the, the pink rat to seem real is for it to get into my narrative of what's happening. And even those narratives um, tend to change. For example, I mean, <laughs> you read my paper when we talk about schizophrenia and someone who can also conclude that their narrative slowly changes. I mean, as they start getting different signals from reality, they start having what's known as psychosis. They start getting out of touch with reality and they start to conclude yeah. that they have less consciousness or they have less of an essence within them and everything's almost exterior, passivity phenomena where everything's kind of controlling you. Well, well think about this. If you're, if you're getting distorted perceptual inputs of some, and some, uh, for some reason, now, uh, you're still wanting to try and make sense of it. You're still wanting to, to, to do this thing of create a narrative. You're still wanting to explain yourself to other people and to yourself. So you're trying now desperately, but now all the, the elements that you, you just like, an, I don't know, imagine like a newsroom that's getting all these conflicting reports and some exaggerated reports that something terrible has happened and other reports saying everything's fine. And then some, you're showing these strange images that some, you know, there's a there's a huge explosion, but yet it's all peaceful and all these. Now you're the newsy to trying to make sense of this, mm. and 
you're, you know, what do you do? You, maybe you construct some kind of weird narrative, say that the world is, is all disturbed or somebody's manipulating the world in some strange way and changing things in the way that they shouldn't be changing. Or maybe you're being persecuted and they're, they're deliberately sending you false reports to confuse you. You're trying to make sense of this by constructing another narrative that makes sense of the, the, the apparent narrative um, that the world is, is supplying you with. And it's not surprising people get, uh, I, I, I think there's, uh, these are people's attempts to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense to them yes. and make sense of themselves as experiences of this world. And I think perhaps one thing that makes this particularly difficult, I'm just sort of speculating here, is that we're, we're very skilled at doing this most of the time when things are going normally. We don't, we hardly, we don't notice we're creating this, this narrative, as it were. It just seems, as, as I said, as if we just sort of look inwards and there's this world of experience and it's all stable and all going along nicely and we're fine. And you, you, know, you don't introspect and suddenly find massive changes in unexpected changes in that inner world. Or, or, um, and so we don't, we're, not, we're not prepared to deal with distortions to it. We don't, we don't realize that we're constructing a narrative. So we, we don't know how to deal with things that are distorting the narrative. Uh, certainly. Uh, and it seems to us, of course, very, very real. And what's even worse is that this is, you know, as we know from, you know, from the Cartesian tradition, that this is like the essence of us. This is the real world. This is the core of our being and it's being all disturbed. And this is what we're supposed to be most comfortable with where we really live and, and, uh, <laughs> Where our real being is, and it's being torn apart. No wonder people feel feel. Yeah, um, it's easy to understand why someone would would say that. But I, I think just to play devil's advocate for a moment, let's let's try and look at some other counter arguments. Would you describe it? Would you think of it as a sort of property dualism? No, no, no. Uh, my view. Yeah. No, 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 no. The, the, the property dualism is the idea that. Um, that uh, there are extra properties in the world mm. over and above those that, let's say, that, that, are, that are, can be categorized by the physical sciences, by the third-person sciences. Um, it's the idea that, that it's, it's very like Descartes' view. Descartes' view was a form of substance dualism. He said mm. that there is this private mental world, and it's actually a separate thing. Mm. It's, it's a separate thing to the physical, it's a separate substance. Property dualism says, well, there is this sort of private mental world, but it's not a separate thing, but it's a separate aspect of the brain that is completely invisible to brain science. Okay, so it's a non-physical property of the brain rather than a, a non-physical thing associated with the brain. And my, my, whole, my whole thrust of what I'm doing is, 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 is no. No, uh, we don't need to posit that. Mm -hmm. um, that's taking these Cartesian intuitions seriously. It's taking, it's like saying that, I don't know, I guess it's like saying that, you know, you've read the Sherlock Holmes stories and they're really convincing. So where's Sherlock Holmes? Mm. You know, uh, is, is he a separate thing or is he maybe some separate, was maybe Sherlock Holmes some sort of alter ego of, of Conan Doyle and there was this ghostly thing following him around? You know, it's, it's a fictional construction. You don't... You know, so no, definitely not uh, anything like property dualism. And so, and also, let's talk about the eliminative, eliminative materialism and how it's different from that as well. Right. Well, this is a little bit tricky because, as it was 
originally formulated by um, Paul Churchill and Patricia Churchill, limitative materialism is really a theory about uh, what's called folk psychology, about mm -hmm. the um, our everyday framework for explaining and predicting other people's behavior in terms of their mental states, in terms of what they think and want and the decisions they make and, um, and so on. And so we say, you know, why, why, why is he crawling around on the floor? Well, he thinks he's dropped his contact lens. And of course, he, he wants to find it. Now, the point of the eliminative the, the materialist argument is, well, that's just, that's just like a very sort of crude folk theory. Um, it's like the idea that, you know, things fall because they want to get to the center of the earth or something like that. It's a fire goes up because it wants to. To, 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 to join those stars or something. It's, it's not a scientifically based theory. And it maybe sort of works in some limited cases, but it doesn't tell you very much. It's not, you can't integrate it with science and it's really just a bit of folklore. It's not much, so much different from talking about people. Why is that person distressed? Oh, they're, they're possessed by a demon. It's in that sort of level. Mm. Um, and so we should just eliminate it. And also, since we're materialists, uh, we should look to uh, science and brain science in particular to provide us with a better framework for understanding predictive people's behavior. Now, the thing to note there is that's mainly not concerned, that's not specifically concerned with consciousness. It's concerned with the whole vocabulary of talk of explaining people's behavior in terms of their mental states. So one way in which it's illusionism is different is it focuses specifically on consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if the churchlands really are. I don't sure they are completely. Uh, I think they're not, not very hostile to it. But I, my, my sense is that they they don't want to deny phenomenal consciousness so much as say that it is actually just a brain process, that it's real but is just a brain process. Mm -hmm. So they'd be reductionists about it rather than illusionists about it. But I mean that, that's for them to 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 explain it. So. First of all, it's, it's, it's more specific. It's about, I mean, I'm not a, 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 a limited materialist about folk psychology generally. I think that it's, that it does us a, a useful job. Now, that's another topic. Because yeah, so that's, specifically that's, that's precisely why I brought it up is because I think that a lot of people tend to think that if you are an illusionist, you most likely are an eliminativist, which is not the case. Uh, no, all I want to eliminate is a certain uh, philosophical conception of consciousness that I think is doing a lot of harm in, well, yeah, as I, I don't want to be too hostile, but I think it is, I think it's causing, uh, um, I think it's directing a lot of attention onto questions that aren't really fruitful and away from, from questions that would be a lot more fruitful. So I, I want to eliminate a certain philosophical of conception of consciousness. Probably could be, one of those questions probably could be the search for neural correlates of consciousness. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a a, a um, wild goose chase mm. because what people are searching for the neural correlates of consciousness they're, they're trying to do this they say look there is this this phenomenal consciousness okay and it's somehow produced by the brain maybe we can't understand it in terms of what the brain's doing but somehow the brain's producing it now since we can't explain it maybe it just emerges you know you get a certain complex in a kind of neural activity and then the lights come on, bingo, uh, the inner light comes on and you're conscious. Now we can't really explain that in, um, in terms of what's happening in the brain, but we could at least find the bits of the brain that correlate with it. 
the bits of the brain that have to be active in order for it to come on. Okay, so they're looking for to find these correlates, which patterns of brain activity cause it to come on. And, and I think that's a mistake, first of all, because I don't think there is anything to come on. I think that's a sort of, that's a story we tell ourselves, uh, kind of an illusion and, you know, it doesn't have, it doesn't exist, so it doesn't have any neural correlates. What we could look for, the neural mechanisms that explain why we think it comes on, why do we think it happens? What's the, the, the explanation for the, um, the illusion? But that isn't looking for correlates. It's looking for explanations. It's looking for mechanisms. Um, and the other reason why I think this is uh, a wild goose chase is that even if it were real, we would never be able to actually find the correlates because it's, by hypothesis, supposed to be radically private. Mm -hmm. So you can never actually, you know, make a, a you can never... The a scientist, as a, 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 the community of scientists, can never actually detect it and correlate it with the, the things they're seeing on their scans because it only exists in the mind of the subject themselves. And I don't think even the subject themselves could correlate it with readings of brain readings because they still have to react psychologically in order to do the correlation. They have to say to themselves, "Oh, I'm currently in that state. Let's see which brain state it correlates with on these readings here from the from the scanner." And that's itself a psychological reaction they can never if it's purely private in that way i don't think i don't think you, you ever could find the correlates of it yeah yeah no precisely so i think that's that's that's, that's a wild goose chase yeah and so in essence let's let's think about some with regards to some of these arguments against illusionism uh, it's always going to come back to phenomenal consciousness i feel that's where most people are going to always bring it back to i think another example would be to talk about Mary, the neuroscientist. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, some, that's another argument people often bring to you. I just, what I want to do with this podcast is obviously give anyone who's on the show an opportunity to express themselves and just clear the air for whatever, the, whatever type of counter argument somebody has for them. So with regards to Mary, the neuroscientist, she basically knows everything there is to know about perception, vision, and neuroscience in general. And suddenly, but she's living in a black and white house. So she's never perceived color um, for all her life. And suddenly she's able to leave this house and see color for the first time. Now, the question is, is if Mary did have all the knowledge there is to know about visual perception, color experience, when she leaves the house, is she going to experience something new? Because that's what they tend to think and coin as phenomenal consciousness. But look, she's certainly going to have experiences she hadn't had before. No one denies that. Um, you know, she's not had color experiences before. And now she's going to have some. Okay, so that will be that will be a, a, an interesting thing. She'll be in a state that she'd not been in before. The question is whether that will reveal something, some new information to her that she hadn't got from studying the mechanisms of color vision. You know, uh, will it will it, when she has a, a color experience? She'll say, "Oh wow, I'm having color experience. This is great. I've not had these before. Uh, I knew what I knew all about them, of course." It's like, you know, somebody who, um, you know, so um, say somebody who studied a, a city, say uh, Paris, say in intimate detail, they've been through it all on um, Google Earth, say, and they've studied the history and they've studied every little street, you know, and then you take them to Paris. Would they learn anything new about Paris? Well, they would say, wow, I'm in Paris. This is amazing. I've never, I've never been here before. Um, I knew all about it, of course. I'm not surprised by anything I see here. I knew that that street's there. So now that's 
Now, if, if my view is right, Mary would be in the position of the person who'd done the intimate, you know, a uh, sort of centimeter by centimeter study of, of Paris. Okay, mm -hmm. so imagine somebody, while she's been in her room, she's not been in, in Paris, she has studied every centimeter of Paris in the most, you know, minutest detail. And now you take her to Paris. Will she learn anything new about Paris? No, because, you know, she already she, knows she studied it. it. Yeah. But she'll still probably be really, you know, amazed and say, wow, Paris, I'm actually here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the analogy. And also, of course, there's another difference as well. And I think this is what tricks people a little bit. When she'd be doing this centimeter by centimeter study of Paris, you know, she'd been looking, you know, the, the, like the, 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 you know, the, the, the patterns on the walls, you know, she could tell you the pattern of decay and damp or whatever on the walls and where the plaster had flaked on this wall, on that street, on the so-and-so. So she knows everything. You've got to remember, she knows where every little bit of grit on the street is. If she bends down and stares at the floor, she, she, she will tell you whether there's a, a scuff mark on the from somebody's footprint or something on the floor. She knows everything. This is why you've got to, it's really hard to imagine. Now, still, when she goes to Paris, so when she goes to Paris, she won't learn anything new about Paris, but she will, that information that she already knew will be presented to her in a new way. Okay, mm -hmm. so instead of this centimeter by centimeter equation, she will suddenly all be just presented to her around like that. And she might go, wow, putting it all together like that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's not that I didn't know that all that was there, but now it's all being presented to me in a new way. And I can just turn my head and it's all just there. Wow, previously I had to sort of look it up laboriously. And now it's just all available to me. Wow, that's, that's neat. But it's still, it's not telling me anything I didn't know. And I think that's the sort of analogy. Do you think, um, um, do you think that the view of illusionism gets a lot of hate because of the fact that you've used the word illusionism or illusion? I mean, just for some context, a lot of people, because the word illusion originated in, in Latin, in Middle English, it was translated to mean deceiving or deception. Illudere uh, was the original word. So I think <laughs> there's obviously going to be this backtracking that has to always occur. And I think that's why Michael calls it a caricature. And I know Nicholas Humphrey refers to it as something else. But I want to ask you about, before we get to the fact that this word, the choice of the word might affect it, what are your thoughts on Nicholas Humphrey's change in direction regarding illusionism because there's a i've read his papers and there's a clear shift in his thinking do you what are your thoughts on that i'm I, i'm honestly not i need i i want to talk to nick some more i'm not sure there has been a shift there's a certainly a, a shift in the way he expresses the theory but i don't think the theory itself has shifted i don't think they're going back to seeing red and um uh, soul dust and the work that he's doing now, I don't think there's been a radical shift at all in the theory. I think, you know, the refinements and so on. Uh, at the time of Soldust, he was quite happy, I think, to embrace an illusionist label. And the first chapters of Soldust are really quite a good statement of the illusionist position. And he does use the, um, uh, the, 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 the analogies of uh, the, the metaphor of magic stage magic and so on. He talks about a magic show and so on. So it's really quite robustly illusion. Now, I don't think he's really changed that basic position, but I think what he's doing, and, and to some extent, this is what Dan's uh, Dennis is doing what I'm doing. He's changed. He's he has this picture, and he's trying to get people to see it, <laughs> and to recognize that it's that it's a, a different way of thinking about consciousness and a better way. Mm. And so, it's not that we've got you know detailed sort of 
arguments from premises to conclusions. It's trying to get people to look at the whole, conceptualize the whole thing differently. Mm-hmm. And so we try out different ways. Think of it like this. Think of it like a magic show. Okay, think of it like a surrealist painting. Think of it like this. It's trying to break down that um, uh, th- th- those Cartesian uh, intuitions while at the same time doing justice to their strength. Mm-hmm. That's the is balancing it, act you've got to do. Is it Humphrey who refers to it as, as phenomenal surrealism? He, he, I think, uh, yes, yes, he used, he's used the term surrealism. He's, he's, the red is, is more red than, the, than, than, uh, than, uh, than real red. It's, it's, so that, it's, it's, yes, it's actually even better it's, that it's you of, make this conclusion. And it's, again, and, and the point is that he would want to emphasize there is that I think, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, is that it's a creation Mm. Surrealist paintings, these are creations, these are interpretations of the world by artists, mm. which is what our brains are. So I think he's wanted to emphasize the, as you said, illusion can seem like a, a, a negative thing. You know, you've got it wrong. No, he's saying we've got it massively right in that we've created this wonderful thing. It's not, you know, an, you know a, 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 a sort of piece of the furniture of reality. It's a creation that we've sculpted for ourselves to enrich reality in the way that artists do. So I think what he's trying to do there is develop a vocabulary for, for expressing essentially the same view that does more justice to the positive aspects, the creative aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's right. I, I, I would need to get down into, there are a few things that say sometimes that I, I, I'm not sure I, I'm quite happy with, but I think certainly the Soldus picture, I'm, I'm very, I, I like that very much. And I don't think there've been radical changes, but. Yes, it's a matter of trying to find uh, a vocabulary, a, a set of thought experiments, intuition pumps, analogies that help to get this picture across. Do you think magicism um, would have been a better term? Magicism. I did suggest, I did originally want to call the illusion problem the magic problem. Mm. Um, I think it was Dave Chalmers who persuaded me to call it the illusion problem, which I think he may regret himself. <laughs> it was possibly um, a, a great way to help the, help formulate the meta problem at that point. Yes, the trouble is, of course, if I called it the magic, magicism, then, well, that suggests something, and that could be misread as... It as could have come across as that more really is. Any single word is going to carry connotations that you don't want because it's a complex position. Um, one thing I do like about illusionism is that it, I do like the fact that it provokes people a little bit because, yes, yeah, some of them just get just see the word, get a vague idea of what it is and get provoked and just don't bother engaging. But others get a bit provoked and think, oh, that sounds that's intriguing. What could he possibly mean? Mm-hmm. And then they get drawn in and have a look and find out, oh, right, he's not saying, you know, that I, 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 I'm not really um, like awake or something. I'm not really seeing things. He's saying that uh, this common... Uh, conception of what it is to see things that's common in the Western tradition, the Cartesian tradition, uh, is, um, is wrong. Uh, and I do like that. I also, I like one reason I like the illusion metaphor is because of the connection with stage magic. Again, Dennett has repeatedly used this. And the, the great thing here is that, that stage magic is all about creating an effect. Um, and this is what consciousness Whatever it is, is I think it's it's an evolved feature, and it's being created because it because it's what it does. Mm. It's it's not an epiphenomenon. It's it, 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 just 
to, to think of that it doesn't do anything, I think, is ridiculous because it's supposed to be so important to us, right? Now, if it's so important to us, then it's going to have come under selectional pressure. And um, I think, you know, think of it in terms of the effect. What effect are our experiences having on us? Mm. What effects are they having in, in regard to our reactions to the world? What effects are they having with regard to our conception of ourselves and our self uh, ability to, to control and and um, um, manipulate ourselves and communicate about ourselves. Think about the effect. And now the effect is kind of wondrous. <laughs> and so is a, 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 the effect of a magic show, levitation. It's a wondrous effect. Uh, how could that possibly be done? It seems to be a hard problem. It doesn't seem to conflict with everything that we know about uh, the way the world works. And there's another aspect to this analogy that I particularly like, which is that when you know how the, the, the levitation is done, you're disappointed. You think, oh, it can't, it just, it's just that. Oh, it's, it's disappointing. You don't really want to know. And that's a, a feeling like, what? Oh, it's just brain. It's just brain activity. Oh, it can't be that. This can't be just brain activity. It's, well, what the effect it had on me was so much more. It's like that feeling of the disappointed child who sees the, how the trick's done. Tricks are never... No, wait, you don't want to re reveal the trick because it's disappointing. That's how I feel about the brain. Although actually, in this case, the, the brain science is pretty amazing too. Yeah, I mean, there, but, there are some, some very good theories as well. If you think about, I mean, I know Nicholas tries to also give the evolutionary basis for why it should happen. Mm, and mm. he does a very good job of red sold us, a red seeing red. Um, but yeah, Michael good. also talks about attention schema theory. So he tries to address yes. both the heart problem and meta problem by just doing the same thing. Um, yes. He calls it a caricature. He he refuses yes. to be labelled as an illusionist, <laughs> but he <laughs> but he acknowledges the fact that it is very much a theory of illusionism. Yeah. Just yeah. He, just, he doesn't like the term. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Uh, I like I like Michael's work a lot. I think it's he's he's um, uh, relatively few number, uh, scientists who is who is. Uh, 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 asking the uh, approaching consciousness from this perspective, mm. um, uh, and he's producing really exciting work. I think that is that is, you know, an outline at least of of of, of an illusionist uh, uh, um, uh, science of consciousness. Um, I, I I certainly think that the attention schema thing is, is is part of the story. I think it's I think we're going to need more than that. I think we're going to need more kinds of self-modeling as well as modeling of, in, of attention. I think we're going to need modeling at least of, 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 of re the reactive process, something like a reaction schema, mm. I think, because I think it's when our intuitions about the feel of experience are not just to do with about where our attention is directed, but about the impact that stimuli are having on us. It, the qualities of, of, of experience, these are things that are meaningful for us. Well, obviously, in case of pains and pleasures and so on, but I think uh, you know, colors and sounds and tastes and things. This, it's they're not just like a sort of gratuitous add-on to make the world more interesting. It's packed with significance. That's nice. That's not nice. That it's far from taking the sort of affective dimension out of consciousness. I think illusionist puts it right back in there. It's not just a kind of uh, like a, 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 um, a sideshow that's just uh, 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 incidental to all the real information processing. It's packed with information mm. about the importance of things, the significance, the way that the world is impacting on us, the, react the reactions that it's evoking. Um, so this story we're telling, it isn't, a, it isn't like a sort of idle, you know, sort of fairy story that just to amuse ourselves. It's, it's a story about what things mean. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I, um, I think that a lot of the times when we're talking about even the perceptual illusions, a lot of people seem to disregard them as as quirks. But uh, but oh, yeah. not merely quirks. These are this is how we function. This is fundamentally this is meant to be the way we're meant to react to this. Um, or, or 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 the worst, it's um, uh, at least it might be. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a side effect of something that that is highly adaptive. Sometimes these are. Uh, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the um, sensory systems have, have used shortcuts and so on, and these are side effects of them. But there's always, it's, it's, it's not just, you know, um, just sort of mysterious things designed to puzzle us. No. Mm. It is fascinating because once you adopt certain theories, for example, if you're looking at free will, uh, illusionism, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out consciousness, there are so many ethical implications to, to right. all of these discussions. I mean, once you adopt, for example, uh, the fact that determinism is true in, when you're talking about free will, uh, there are lots of studies that show that when, when people believe this, they're less likely to have accountability for their actions. Uh, what do you think are the philosophical implications of illusionism? Um, the philosophical or ethical? Sorry, the, the ethical implications. Yeah. Well, now, you make a good point there that um, I don't think that, just to take determinism for that, I don't think determinism has any um, um, uh, negative implications, but a misunderstanding of it might have. If people think that it means, <laughs> if people think that the truth of determinism would somehow mean that they are constrained in what they can do, that would be, I guess, bad. Of course, they're not. The only thing that's constraining them is themselves, is their own, <laughs> you know, you can't be constrained by your own cognitive processes, but, you know, my brain made me do it, sir. No, no, <laughs> you, you are your brain, you know. Um, uh, it's, uh, you're constrained by outside influences. You might be also constrained by certain habits and things that you've developed yourself, but then they are part of you and you, they've got ways in which you can deal with them. Determinism itself doesn't constrain you. Um, but you might think it does, and that might be worrying. So, okay, now with illusionism, I don't think it has negative consequences at all. In fact, I think it has rather benign consequences. I mentioned earlier this, that it it helps to dissolve this sense of our each being um, being uh, radically isolated from each other, you know, inhabiting private little metaphysical bubbles, as it were. Um, I think, you know, other people's, Mental lives are not hidden from us in that way, not, or just contingently connected to the way they're, 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 they're reacting to the world. If we study another person with enough sensitivity and enough detail, we can, we can know what the world is like for them. And that, I think, puts us in a much better position to understand them, to empathize, to care about them. Um, uh, uh, so I, I think this brings us closer to each other. I like that. I think this, this is I think even something when I, you I take into account that sort of humility that comes with it, uh, the yes. fact that we're, we're taking ourselves away from this top of the pinnacle that we keep putting ourselves yes. back on. Uh, and, to- I, 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 absolutely. And it's, for instance, one question that always, from a realist perspective on phenomenal consciousness, there's always this question, which other creatures possess it? And it seems to be a, a kind of on-off thing. Either there is this inner world or there isn't. I mean, do octopuses have an inner world? Well, Maybe it's very different from ours, but they either do or they don't. You know, it's on or off. So in which creatures is it on and which creatures is it off? Mm-hmm. How, we, we, that's, that, you know, what's it like to be about? What's it like to be an octopus? We can't tell. We can, all we can do is map their sensitivities and reactions. Mm. We can't pierce through those to some pure phenomenal essence. Uh, and on, so 
their conscious, and if you think that consciousness, phenomenal consciousness, is what really matters ethically, this means that the, the, the base, the grounds for the for ethical concern are systematically hidden from us. Mm. We can never tell whether we should care about octopuses. Well, that's a pretty depressing view, I think. It's kind of you think, well, so what's you know, your intuitions, octopuses, no, unconscious, you know, my intuitions can't. That's it. We, I can't convince you. Um, now, look at it, remove the idea that there's this radically private inner world and that all there is is this hugely complex set of sensitivities and reactions, and we can start making progress. We can study octopuses and find out what they're sensitive to and what kind of reactions different things provoke in them. And then we can ask ourselves, does it matter to you that a creature with those sensitivities and those patterns of reactions is being uh, injured in that way? I mean, uh, even dolphins, if you look at the way dolphins react to humans, uh, they communicate, they sort of lie, they have this way of interacting. Uh, something funny I, I saw the other day, it was the dolphins understand us, but we still barely understand dolphins. It's quite, <laughs> quite fascinating. But I know you, you've written, uh, you were part of the, the Cambridge Handbook of Cognitive Science, uh, one of the authors, oh, and the Cambridge Handbook of Artificial Intelligence. So I'm curious to know, how, what are your thoughts now moving forward with illusionism and what, what are the possibilities moving forward regarding artificial intelligence and just the cognitive science, sciences in general? Well, look, look again, um, one of the problems for AI, this is a really interesting. One of the, the, um, the, um, the big uh, questions there is, you know, can we make artificial consciousness? <laughs> Could we know if we'd made it? Well, again, we can make, we can create systems with certain abilities, with certain kinds of perceptual sensitivities, and with certain, uh, uh, then that, that can use perceptual information to uh, uh, um, regulate their, their, uh, their behavior and to, uh, uh, to generate a whole raft of responses. And we can know ex we can map those in, in 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 great detail. Maybe we could make ones that have the same range of sensitivities and reactive dispositions that we have. Would it be conscious? Well, it all depends on what you think. Again, what you think is necessary to produce consciousness. If it's if it's something extra, something over and above all of those things, what causes it to emerge? Is it enough to produce the same sorts of information processing activities, the same sensitivities and reactions, or do do you have to? Um, produce that in the same way that um, produce those things in the same way that they're produced in humans using biological materials. Is there something special about biological materials that causes consciousness to emerge, um, and artificial materials, you know, silicon or whatever, wouldn't? And that's and that's something that possibly. And that is something that John Saul talks about. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, the, the Chinese room experiment, for example. Yes, yes. The point is. If you look at it that way, you, there's no way to know whether you've produced it. You know that you say, say you've produced a creature like um, one, the, the, some intelligent robots in science fiction that can talk to us and tell us that and say, yes, I'm conscious. I'm experiencing things. Still, maybe all you've produced is a creature that thinks it's conscious, that uh, reacts as if it's conscious, but it doesn't really have this essence. Maybe it hasn't. The essence of consciousness hasn't really emerged because you've not used the right materials. Mm. Um, or because you've uh, created these responses in a different way to the way they're created in us or something like that. There's, and there's that, some can, that can actually add an element of risk because ideally, if, if we do get to a point where we've created these artificial intelligence machines that act like us, speak like us, behave like us, at what point are we going to give them the rights 
that we think we deserve? Well, uh, again, it's the same, exactly the same situation with animals. If, if you think that this matter is determined by whether they possess some extra feature that is radically private, that only they can really know whether they have it or not, um, then you're, all you've got are intuitions. Uh, and you might systemize, system, uh, systematize those intuitions into some sort of theory and say, okay, uh, this thing emerges when you have this kind of information processing or when you have these kind of components, uh, uh, biological components or whatever. But it's, you can't test it because you can't get into the creature's mind and see whether the lights have come on, whether the phenomenal lights have come on. Uh, you can't get past the reactions to the phenomenal reality. So it's the, the answer to this ethical question is going to be forever hidden from you. The best you can do is guess at it. And, and I think we've, we've already started doing that to a sense. I mean, we've, the, the types of animals we've studied, um, we've, we looked at chimpanzees, orangutans, the we've always looked at ones that were, most, that were similar to us uh, to find mm -hmm. these correlates. And then when you look mm -hmm. at an octopus and how far away it is from us, uh, the relationship's mm -hmm. so different, the, mm -hmm. the evolution of an octopus is so far from us. And then you can see that still this being has so much cognition going on. It's doing such intriguing and fascinating things. Um, mm -hmm. There's no need to, to project some sort of an essence onto it. This, this being uh, ex its own experience. Exactly. It's, you know, the, the alternative perspective to the one I was just outlining is the illusionist one, which is, it, 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 there's, whatever judgments we make should be made on the basis of the kind of sensitivities and, uh, and reactive dispositions the creature has. So just study the creature, see what it's sensitive to, see what effects uh, uh, things have on it, what kind of psychological effects, you know, emotional effects, if you, if you think it has emotion systems, um, what kind of behavioral effects. What, how, do, how does this affect it? And does it matter to you that it's affecting it in that way? Mm. Um, that's, seems to me a perfectly sound basis. In fact, the only real basis for making these decisions. I mean, suppose there were this phenomenal essence uh, in their heads. Well, what difference does that make to the creature? Suppose there is this, say, phenomenal essence of like extreme pain, but the creature is kind of not noticing it. And it's not having, you know, it's being projected in the inner cinema, but sort of the homunculus that watches the inner cinema is, is asleep and it's not reacting to it. Well, so why would that matter? And yeah. It's the only things in the end that we that matter are uh, effects, mm. how the world is Im impacting on us. Um, and uh, th that would go for the inner world too, as far as I can see, unless you think that somehow this inner world is a separate thing, quite separate from the, uh, uh, the rest of the, the cognitive system, the rest of the psychology, and it's a kind of like a, an entity in itself. And what happens to that thing matters intrinsically to the thing itself, rather than to the, if it's not having any effects on me, but it's having effects to the thing, to, we're back to a soul, back to a Cartesian soul. If you think there is this non-physical substance that enters these states and those states matter for the thing itself, yeah, right, okay, then I can get that. Mm. But if I'm just an organism, then anything that's happening in my brain has to have some effects on the rest of my the rest of the organism for me as the organism to care about it. So I think that this, we, and we still haven't got rid of the Cartesian dualism and the Cartesian dualism is affecting the way we think about other, anim other, other animals, the way we think about artificial intelligence 
And, you know, would we, if we put together the right components in the same way, would the, the light suddenly come on? Would this inner world spring into existence? That's the wrong way to think about it. It's not only the wrong way to think, even if it were the right way to think about it, it wouldn't get us anywhere. Mm. We'd, we'd, we'd still have to think about it in the illusionist way, even if realism were true, because you can't do anything with the realist way. Mm. It's, it's putting all the relevant facts completely beyond our, 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 um, uh, uh, our powers of inquiry. So you can't do AI on a Cartesian basis, even if Cartesianism were true. Mm. Yeah. So no, you've got, so in, in practice, this is the thing that, da that, that Dennett often says, that you know, scientists are effectively illusionists because all they're studying in the end are reactions. True, that's very true. I think another way to look at the, some of the ethical implications would be there is a field in psychiatry known as phenomenological psychopathology. And the very essence of phenomenological psychopathology is obviously phenomenology. It is the very focus, the very core of this treatment basis. And they try to, to look at patients not merely as and nothing but, because of, of course it can come across as very, very much reductive. We can sound very reductive when we say we are inherently these chemical reactions, we are inher inherently all these neurotransmitters communicating to each other. But when you take on that phenomenological perspective, you tend to treat someone more like a person. So I think that's, that's a certain aspect where I think ethical dilemmas will arise with the illusionist view. There's, there's nothing in illusionism that, that is incompatible with that approach. Mm. Because when you take that approach, you're simply asking people to tell you, talk to you about what it's like for them. Mm. And that is absolute, that is completely relevant from an illusionist perspective because it's another kind of reaction. What their story is, what their self-narrative is, that's the heart of the matter, okay? Uh, yes, you must know their self-narrative. How else are you going to know how things are affecting them? Uh, you know, how are they vibrating in response to the world? You absolutely, and the more you can get of that self-narrative, the better. And of course, you don't say to them, oh, your self-narrative is wrong, it's just an illusion. <laughs> You say that's your self-narrative, that, and it is their self-narrative. It's not like you, you know. It's like you don't go to an author like Conan Doyle and say, "Oh, yeah, that's that's wrong. You got that role wrong about Sherlock Holmes." <laughs> no, that's your creation. It's like um, again with with Humphrey with the surrealism. This is what you've created. This is your creative interpretation of yourself, and that's incredibly valuable. It's going to be important for you, and it's important for us in trying to understand you. Yeah. All that illusionist says is, don't assume though that na narrative is a literal report of, a, of an inner world that has all those entities just as described in the narrative. Just as you don't read Sherlock Holmes stories, you don't have to assume that there really was this you know, individual in Baker Street with the, and so on. Mm. Um, the, 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 it, it's treating these reports as you treat like poetry or fiction and so on. They can be immensely expressive and they can tell you really important things about human life and, and, uh, and so on. It's just that they're telling it in a, a fictionalized vocabulary, if you like. Mm -hmm. But they're still using it to exactly. express think, things that are yeah, absolutely... I, I agree. Absolutely. I don't think there is... I don't think they're at odds in any way. I do that, agree. I, I, I think... Sorry. I, I, I do worry, you because you said this earlier, that people may think that there is this opposition. Mm. Um, and it's... It's not just the name. I mean, the, the doctrine itself, if it's not understood well, 
And this isn't a criticism of people who understand it well, people don't have time to, to, to study philosophy. And in fact, if you don't know, I mean, it was a, I like the way you started by asking a bit about the history, because you need to know how we got into this situation in order to know why you need this remedy to get out of it. Mm. And if I just sort of propose this theory just out of the blue with no context, if, if phenomenal realism weren't the dominant position, then this would seem strange. Why are you saying this? But the point is, there's this whole tradition of uh, you know several hundred years that has infected our philosophical thinking and still infects uh, not just philosophy, but the way science is done, the way we think about artificial intelligence, and it's distorting it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to sort of say, no, stop. That's wrong. That's an illusion. And, <laughs> um, but the way that that's presented within those philosophical traditions, maybe, um, maybe, maybe it should be presented in a somewhat different way for a, um, a lay audience. Mm. I think um, I, you're touching on a great point because I wanted to conclude by, by giving you an opportunity for some final defenses. Uh, what, what are the final defenses you could possibly give to someone who is questioning illusionism and has some doubts about the theory? You do a very great. I think you do a great job in in your Aeon piece. I, I, I read it, <laughs> and I think because that was directed at a specific type of audience, because you were not talking to philosophers, yeah. scientists, yeah. talking to the layperson reading yeah. this. I think your, your approach I'm, there is very good. Good. So I think you should. I'm working on this. I'm working on a on a popular presentation of of, of this. So um, it's, this is all good. You know, practice in trying, and, and what I'm doing every time I talk about this, I'm trying out new, sometimes the, off the top of my head, new metaphors, new analogies, new ways of trying to get it across. And I think I have the, the, the core idea fairly clear, but the way of trying, uh, the best way to communicate it, the best way to get uh, I, I, it's, it's when you said about arguments and, and, and defenses, that's what it gave me a pause because it's not that I've I've got a series of like, I start with this premise and you know, I start with the premise of say physicalism or something and then move to this and this and this and then you end up with illusion. It's not like that. It's more a matter of we're looking at it the wrong way. So one metaphor I've been using recently is, you know, standing on a different hill to look at the landscape and look everything, you see different alignments between things. And I think that's the way Dennett has been doing this. If you read his book, um, Consciousness Explained, look at it frustrated because there doesn't seem to be, you know, a sort of, a, a rigorous argument for the position. Mm. It's just a kind of a lot of thought experiments and and and, and analogies and um, uh, uh, suggestive uh, uh, descriptions. And yes, that's exactly what it, what it is because he's trying to get you to come over here and have a look at the landscape from that perspective. Consciousness and, explained is sort of a an intuition pump book for illusionism. Yes, absolutely, and which is. Um, it, it, we, we need to pump the counterintuitive in um, um, uh, the counter. Sorry, I'm getting to, the counter Cartesian intuitions. Mm. Um, so it's easy to pick up on particular notions like, to, 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 uh, con, um, to take the term illusion and say, look, illusions have these features and this doesn't have these features. So that is a, that's kind of superficial. Mm. Um, Many of the objections, I think, misunderstand the position, though perhaps in ways that are that are natural and that I should have done more to uh, to, to combat, and which I do more to to to, to um, anticipate. Um, really, the best way to ask to get somebody to 
the best way to defend the position, I think, is to try and keep explaining it better and get people to try and adopt it, at least as, a, to, as an experiment. Mm -hmm. Try looking at it this way, because I think if you don't actually try to inhabit the perspective and see things through the illusionist um, um, uh, uh, spectacles, you will, the, the, the intuitive resistance, because you're still stuck in the Cartesian mindset, the intuitive resistance will be so strong that you just won't, you know, you'll maybe come up with some objections and I can maybe give you some responses to those objections, but you still won't be satisfied. You say, yeah, well, whatever you're saying that, but still it's just, you know, can't be right. So um, the best form of defense, I think, is, 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 is to keep trying to present it in more, um, uh, accessible more friendly more intuitive ways mm. there really are there aren't really intuitive ways of, of thinking about I consciousness think a lot consciousness of people i'm not sure are you familiar with the work of darren brown oh yes i mean, tricks of i call my website tricks of the mind yes, and, uh, exactly uh, and he's written a book called tricks of the mind as well yes he has uh, I've got a because I, that was actually one of the ways I, I i steered into this route it was watching the type of brain tricks he performs on people, the mentalism, to show people exactly how how much we misinterpret what's, things. What's so cool about 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 Darren's work, I think, is that a lot of what he does, I, I, as I understand it, is just standard, you know, conjuring tricks that are you know methods are known for a long time. Um, but whereas conjurers traditionally presented this as magic, you know, as some kind of, you know, just supernatural thing. He presents it as super psychology. Exactly. Like, so what he's using is using super psychological powers. It's not magic. It's not that. It's my super psychological powers that maybe you could develop. Hmm. And it's not super psychology. It's always tricks. It's trickery. Exactly. <laughs> but he makes you think it's super psychology. And I love that. And again, uh, I think another one of his books is called Pure e Effect. Hmm. This is the thing why I like the analogy with, that, with magic. It's about effect. You don't need to have phenomenal consciousness. Having the effect of it will be enough. Yes. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, then it again, what happens then? What happens when there's the presentation? What's the effect on the audience? Do they mm. feel that something wonderful has happened? Do they feel... Uh, so... Um, yeah, a lot of people... Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. A lot of people tend to think these representations are occurring as an image. Where <laughs> we know... You're, you're not really saying that. No, no, no. no, sort no. Of say, I think another great person who, who describes no. this very well is Carl Friston. Carl Friston, right. when he talks about inference, he, mm -hmm. he sort of, he talks about how when you take in certain stimuli, you're, you're not going to infer that there is, for example, a red sunset. I mean, sorry, you're not going to infer the fact that electromagnetic radiation has hit your retina, is converted via the optic nerve, gone into your brain and done that. You're going to infer the most easily accessible explanation amid this array of bombarding information. You have to somehow focus on something specific. It's, it's, too, it's too difficult for us to, to actually acknowledge each neural connection. Um, it, it, that's just impossible. From an energy conserving perspective, and I and I think he talks about the free energy principle. You have to sort of conserve energy. That's that's the bottom line. Fake it till you make it. When it comes to consciousness, <laughs> you, you, you don't need to, to know either. This is the thing. Um, uh, your 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 brain is, is is doing it. Your brain is doing a wonderful job, and it's getting on with it all the time. And it's you know it's generally do, doing a marvelous job. 
And a lot of the time you really don't, you as the person, as it were, as that you don't need a story about what the brain is doing. You don't need to ask yourself what the brain is doing. You don't need to tell anybody. You just need to get on and do it. If you're playing sports or something, you're right in the moment. You're in the zone. You're not in your head, as it were, then you're in the world. You are just something in the world interacting with the world in a rich and complex and quite wonderful way. And you don't any longer seem to be in a private world in your head. It's only when you start questioning where things go wrong, maybe. And what was that? What did I see there? Could it have been that? Oh, am I imagining things? Now then you start getting it. Or somebody says to you, wait a minute, what did you, what are you thinking about? Penny, a penny for your thoughts. Or how did that feel? Now you start having to sort of look inward, introspect. And you have to come up with some sort of story about what's happening in there. And you don't have a clue really about what's happening in there. Because all this talk about representations and information processing and predictions, that's all happening at what somebody calls a sub-personal level. It's not things you're doing, it's things your brain is doing that enable you to do the things you do. You're playing sports, say. Your brain is doing a heck of a lot of information processing with sen dealing with sensory signals things that enable you to play sports, to play cricket or whatever it is, and also enable you to ask yourself, what's happening with me and what am I doing and what's my brain doing? <laughs> but of course, we don't really think of ourselves as, uh, we don't think of it that way. We don't think that our brains are doing it. We think that we're doing it. Okay, mm -hmm. so playing sports, how did you play that shot? How did I play that shot? I don't know. I guess I saw the ball and thought it was going a bit wide and that I'd have a little uh, you know, I'd have a flash at it and I made contact. And it, uh, I don't know. My brain did it really, but I've got to tell a story. In fact, the so more we start we, telling these stories. In fact, the more we try to intervene and try to explain this thing, <laughs> I'm worse at the task. I mean, absolutely. If you're really trying to focus on the ball, you might not be as good as uh, in any case. But I think another great way to to highlight that the illusionist view is beautiful. It is it is one of those views that can actually be poetic. Is to think about it. Uh, I, I often say we are perceiving persons organized by organs, um, designed by DNA, manufactured by molecules, assembled by atoms, forged by fusion via stellar supernovae. Once you take into this whole account that our atoms were formed in stars, etc., you are part of this universe, not, not apart from this universe. And the fact of the matter is, you, it is not... You, it's not a human experiencing, it's what is it like to be in the universe? It is the universe experiencing what it is like to be a human. That is actually what's going on here. Yeah, yes, I, I, I underlined that in, in your paper. I like this a lovely way, way of putting it. And I, yeah. I do like that. Yes, uh, we need to, <laughs> yes, we need to sort of get over ourselves a little bit. It's, again, it's, it's this, I mean, we are wonderful. We're wonderful things. Um, we're wonderful biological creatures with wonderful capacities, but we're not metaphysically special, I don't think. We're not like some special extra ingredient in the universe. We don't have some essence that is not present in other things, in other complex things that wouldn't be present in, a, in, in, in suitably complex robots or maybe is not present in animals. We're not, we don't, it seems to us that we do. And that of course is central to Humphrey's story. He, he says this idea that we have this special private inner world makes us relish life and, and, and engage with the world in a, in a richer way. It's a kind of wonderful extra thing that, 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 that evolution has given us. Um, but it's still just a, a sense of having it. It's not really having it. We're not that special. We may think we're special, and our thinking we're special may may may, may be a good thing. But we we're not that special. Consciousness is an amazing thing, but it's not you know absolutely 
out of this world. You know? Consciousness um, is really the 21st century vitalism. <laughs> it's, I do think so. I do think so. And, and the, more, um, I, 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 the more we figure it out, uh, I think the more added layers of some sort of an essence will appear. Uh, I think it's culturally ingrained. I think it's religiously yes. ingrained. I think yes. there's so many elements that that hinder this process from happening. Uh, but and the important thing is we're not going to lose anything. Yeah. It's not like you know the, the 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 sunset is going to look any 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 less wonderful if you accept this account of it of what's happening when you experience it. The pain is not going to be sadly the pain is not going to be any less um, unpleasant. Um, it's just that we're going to have a richer understanding of what is occurring when you see the sunset, when you feel the pain. Um, it's, I mean, and in, in a way, the, the, one of the reasons I, I resist treating uh, uh, consciousness in this metaphysical way is it kind of just draws a line under explanation. It says, well, this just emerges. Mm, that's it. We don't know how. Can't explain it. It's just an extra feature. It just emerges. So what? We can't really investigate it then. No, it's just a... That, that's no let's try let's see if we can understand and that doesn't take away, understanding doesn't take away the wonder understanding life doesn't take away the wonder of life um it uh, in, if anything it adds to it richard greatly. feynman talks about that very well he talks about yes. that flower i mean just because yes. uh, he has a friend who's a painter i think and he talks about the fact that he we break down this flower with science we talk about the cells we talk about the molecules and he talks about how yes the fact that we can see each added layer of this flower adds so much more beauty to this flower. You can think about the fact that it evolved to do certain things, that bees are coming to interact with this to do certain things. I mean, there's so many extra layers of information Absolutely. that make it so much more elegant. Right. Or, or, or think about, uh, about, about literature and poetry. If somebody had, had read, a, um, if someone had read a, a novel, taking it to be a, an historical account of, you know, of real events, and we said, no, actually, it's, a, it's just a, a fiction. It doesn't. They're not going to say, oh, well, it means nothing to me now. Mm. In a way, you know, it's precisely because novels can pull together so much uh, of human experience and put it together and package it in a way that is that is so effect that creates such an effect upon us mm. that maybe a, a mundane story of the actual events wouldn't. That's what makes it so wonderful. That's what poet, uh, poetry, again, we're back to, 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 to Humphrey again, this creativity, the way that a, a poem can, it distorts in an, really creative way in an expressive way mm. um and a mundane account of a, a, a sunset or seeing a bunch of daffodils wouldn't have anything like the effect that a poem that a poem can do i mean so it's far from a, 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 a an anti um um what's the word i'm looking for not anti-humanist anti um philistine sort of perspective as i see it I think even when you think about, because uh, a sunset is beautiful. We, we talk about sunsets, beautiful. It's beautiful. It's something people mm -hmm. love to look at. But if you take what the sun really is, this white star, we don't get to see the actual elegance that is a white star because of our environment and because of the atmosphere that's blocking that. But, mm -hmm. but an astronaut or somebody who's been to space can tell you about the sheer elegance of seeing real white light, even though we know yes. that's just an array of different spectrums of light combined. But the fact that we know that doesn't take away anything from it. I think having more, Humphrey, you're right, Humphrey does a great job at communicating mm -hmm. this in a way that makes it a lot more accessible to people to fall in love with it. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 Soul Dust is a lovely book. I do. I always encourage people to read that book um, because he, he has, and the opening chapters are 
very um, sort of hard-headed physicalist, very clear uh, on his metaphysical position. And then it blossoms into this wonderful account of consciousness, which draws on poetry and music and painting and mysticism. And it, I mean, it really does do justice to the wonder of the thing my, he's talking about. And he copy shows of, how you my can... My copy of Soldas, the pages have become so yellow, just... <laughs> I remember when I when I, uh, I I when I when I first met Nick, I was give, I gave a little reply to a presentation he gave, and I said I, I think I, I want to thank Nick because he's shown me how, as a physicalist, I, uh, I can save uh, save my soul. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and I think even the uh, fact that he named the book Soul Dust shows that as a physicalist, he has this innate ability to want to make this romantic. He wants to yeah. he wants to add layers of 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 just enjoyment. Uh, I, absolutely because I, I, I think if when you look at Darren Brown's interviews although he's when he's performing he's trying to sell this idea of super psychology mm -hmm. and whatever mm -hmm. but when he does an interview and he tells you about the fact that he's trying to expose these charlatans all these yeah. people who are trying to convince you that you have these extra layers he, he goes and attacks these people who think they they are psychics uh, and and can read other people's minds and uh, he shows you exactly that the, if you take a reductive and not a nothing but manner. It's not. It's not nothing but. It's more but. understand each layer of reality, and, and then and then paint yourself a more holistic picture. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, a sense of wonder and and uh, and uh, that is rooted in a clear perception of how things are. It, it, it's so much more valuable one that's rooted in uh, you know in 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 in, uh, in fantasies. Mm. I think um, another person that I'm not sure if you're familiar with Oliver Sacks work, but oh yes, yes, amazing way of just taking these scientific elements from neurology, neuroscience, and psychology, but but making it so easily accessible and so beautiful. And I actually based this when I when I started this podcast, it was all because he was the first person to make me fall in love with this field. Um, so all these writers, I think, who have this ability to communicate this in ways that make it accessible, I think will help this account. So Humphrey does do a, a fantastic job of that. And I think your, your second paper where you, where, you, where you talk about illusionism and, and you try to counter each argument from everyone else also does a very good job at explaining all of this because I've read that as well. Uh, but, oh, thanks for reading that. That's at the end of the volume. And so not, not sure how many people get to that one, but I just don't think anybody takes the time to really get to that point, um, mm -hmm. which is a difficult... Yes, um, yes, I do want, I, I say I am working on a, a popular presentation, but I want to get it right. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, you see, it's, it's easy to write for, for a philosophical audience because there's, it's, it's the, the kind of the rules of the game are kind of set out and you know what sort of moves you make and they make those moves and you make these moves and everybody kind of understands it and so on and there you've established it, whatever, you know, with these caveats and so on and so forth. But you... <laughs> It's often these papers have a lot of clever moves in them, but very little reflection on the nature of the game itself. Yes. And if you want to write a popular piece, a piece, and I don't mean popular in a dismissive way at all. I mean, a piece for people who aren't obsessive, you know, philosophy, um, um, <laughs> um, like, like obsessive chess players, you know, you can't just take the game for granted. You've got to explain why this game, why we're playing this game in the first place. And, you know what's the point of it, and you've got to, and so, and sometimes you see that really, you know, it's not even about that particular game. It's about getting a, you know, 
I'm sorry, I'm losing track. I'm losing grip of my metaphor here. But uh, maybe the game we should be playing is a somewhat different one, or it's you know, it's 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 the game. The um, game needs to be tailored more towards the spectators rather than the players. Uh, it, it, uh, certainly that. Um, 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 because the players have a, a, a whole; they have access to so much more information. They know exactly what's going on. The first yes. person, a subjective experience. Whereas the the spectators often coming in, not really understanding why did the player do that? Why did this? Yeah. Why did he not shoot for goal? What's going on here? Yeah, so, exactly. But he knows why he didn't shoot for goal. He knows all these yeah, things. Exactly. And that's the thing. You, uh, when you're writing for a philosophical audience, they know they know exactly what you're talking about. But. But also, I, 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 my metaphor didn't really <laughs> bring this out. But what, what, I, there's a there's a big disadvantage to that way of doing philosophy. It's that it blinds you to the stuff that's not on the chessboard, as it were. All you're concerned with is the moves that can be made within this chess game. You're not seeing the interaction between uh, yourself and your opponent in any wider context. Okay, so maybe the chessboard is a way of a way of sort of having a competition with somebody, but there's a this whole context, a whole human context to the, to, 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 to the interaction. And that's what you kind of miss. You just focus on the moves on the chessboard. You don't see the point. Why are we even playing this game? Is it part of some wider context? Is it part of some diff wider difference that you and I have? Um, what's, or is it, or is it, or is it just, just a chess game? In which case, why is it should, why should anybody be interested in it uh, outside uh, outside the chess fraternity. And I think there's a danger that philosophy is like that. But ideally, what we're doing when we do these philosophy papers, we make these moves, is we're trying to map spaces in you know, uh, uh, po possible theoretical positions that have real world consequences. These, these kings and queens and so on, they represent real people and the pawns and the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for a, it's a representation of a, of, a, of a real world situation. And we can lose that. I think that's, that's, that's where I should have gone with it. We should, what does the game represent? I was I was also um, thinking about it as when you when you look at virtual realities, they ooh. at some point we're reaching a point where we're going to have these virtual realities. And at what level of complexity is someone going to actually say, is that not just another reality? Uh, yes, I, the, the, I know David Chalmers has just written a, a big new book on on, on this, uh, which I haven't. Yes, read, I, I've noticed he's, he's now into the virtual reality world because it, it is quite fascinating when you take into account when you've putting on another mind. And top of the mind. We're not talking about supermind and mind, uh, your your publication, but you're you're basically adding another sort of ethereal, because people are going to start adding an ethereal entity to that once it becomes a lot more accurate, because that's already a case now. People think this could be its own virtual reality. This the, the, the this is the matrix in a sense. So we're just adding more matrices to this game. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, uh, I, 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 I haven't thought a lot about this, so I don't have anything very profound or deep to say. I mean, obviously, you've got to have some sort of base reality where there is uh, the, the, the base level of computation being done, the basic level of, of cognition. So if you have put on a virtual um, 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 uh, uh, reality headset, then it's my brain that's doing the computation on the on the on the on the signals. Now, if this world and my brain is itself part of a simulation, then there must somewhere be some other cognitive system that is doing the processing of the signals that representing my body and so on. Okay, so you don't sort of I don't see how you know you, you, you it's got to bottom out in some sort of um, uh, in, in some kind of uh, uh, cognitive system somewhere. 
And then, as you say, we can add layers and layers of it. I'm not so sure. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not, okay, so here's something I'm going to say. I don't know whether I agree with it. Um, is this all that different from things that humans have been doing for a long, long time, sitting around the fire and telling each other stories and going in, into, into the world of Odysseus and, uh, and the Trojan War and, other and so on and the Hindu myths and these kind of things? Um, is it that much different? It's supplying it. What humans, humans have got this wonderful technique. And this is again something I've taken from them. They, they've learned that they don't just have to wait for the world to stimulate them. They can auto stimulate themselves. Mm. It's like you can, you know, there's some kinds of you know experiences that are, that are really interesting and nice, and sort of like having an adventure is really is nice and maybe, but you can have it. You can create an artificial adventure by having someone tell you a story or reading a story or telling yourself a story if you're imaginative enough person. And we've been doing this for as long as we've had language, I'm sure. And it's one of the great things that language does. It enables us to auto. And I think this is very much connected with this idea of, of our having a private um, uh, inner world, because after all, where does the story take you? Mm. It's taking you somewhere that's not there. It's into a world of imagination. Where is that? It's in your mind. And, you know, now, I'm not sure that virtual reality is, uh, modern virtual reality is, is, is doing anything radically different from that. It's just providing a richer sense, a richer stream of stimulation. I think what it could do is actually show people precisely how possible it is to create these experiences in a machine that we've basically constructed within. So I think th those are going to be some of the philosophical implications of virtual realities at some point. This this, this will be really interesting. I think we can pretty much almost do this now. You could, um, you can have a remote hookup to a, and again, there's a wonderful story by Dennett, the work called Where Am I? You could have a, um, be hooked up remotely to a, to a, a um, uh, an Android uh, that, you know, and with the visual uh, sensors, you know, the auditory sensors, and you get touch feedback and so on, haptic feedback and so on. And so you operate, um, you sort of close your eyes, whatever, and you um, close your eyes, you look at the, 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 um, the headset, and you operate the Android as if you were kind of inhabiting its body. Now, now as I understand, what happens when, when people do this is they, they tend to shift perspective, and they actually tend to feel as if they are there inside the Android looking out. They are there inside the robot looking out of its eyes. And if this got sufficiently rich, and maybe they got, say, also they got some interoceptive feedback from the state of the android's body, um, damage, pain, uh, other bodily systems, temperature, all of this, and they got they got all that as well. And we could hook up. The, they might get to the point where they really felt completely that they had that this self inside there mm. that seems to be in here had transferred itself over there into the into the robot, and uh, that might help them to. To see this, the, the um, to um, uh, to appreciate the sense in which this is a construction, mm. this self is a construction, um, uh, which can be attached to different bodily entities. Mm -hmm. It's not that this somehow sort of created this, this hookup, sort of created, of course, a self to emerge over there and the one over here to sort of disappear, or this one to somehow trans fly over there. Um, it's 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 a construction. It's a narrative being created by your brain. Originally, uh, a narrative tied to this, to what's happening to this body, and now tied to what's happening to that one. Exactly. Uh, so it might help to loosen that sense. Yeah. So, Keith, in terms of your 
the plans moving forward with illusionism yeah. or what's 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 going on there well <laughs> well i'm i'm, I'm writing uh, I, I keep writing um um uh pieces both academic pieces but for um, scholarly pieces for journals and also popular pieces and increasingly trying to write popular pieces mm. um, again not using popular in any um, derogatory sense I, I, I uh, was, was it William James I don't think it was William James who said it but someone said if you can't express it clearly you don't understand it yourself and nothing I makes me was it uh, it's attributed to me I'm not sure. uh, nothing makes me think harder and about what I about, about what I really mean than trying to express it for a, a, a wide audience, a popular audience. It's easy to just rely on slogans when you're writing a, a scholarly piece. So I'm keen to that. And that's going to build up, all that stuff eventually is going to build up into a um, what I hope will be a, um, a, 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 a widely read book on uh, illusionism, trying to present it. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the title, the provisional title uh, for that is, um, I'll tell you, is, is, is Descartes' Prison. Okay. Interesting. So, um, um, and it's about escaping from it, of course. Um, I like so that's the, that's I the like long term project. I, I, Considering there's been a Descartes so, era, Galileo's era, so I think I kind of <laughs> like the Descartes prison. <laughs> uh, somebody, something seems to be a general, generally good formula. <laughs> Someone's always starting the process. I'm actually going to chat to Philip Goff soon about. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, yes. error. So we'll we'll be discussing that soon. That's yes, that's great. I yes, I, I have a very enjoyable interaction with with Philip, um, and he's pursuing. Uh, he's investigating what happens if you take this intuition seriously, mm. and where they okay. take you. And he's doing that with a great deal of of rigor and uh, uh, and intelligence. Uh, yeah, it's, it's strange because Philip, as a panpsychist, as someone who takes panpsychism as the view. He considers illusionism to be the most, the second most coherent and logical one. I think if he had to choose any other one, he would possibly go to the the other side. I I know Dave Chalmers, uh, David Chalmers uh, said that. I didn't know Philip had committed to it as his as his. Uh, yeah, I think yes, yes. I think he, he does mention that, doesn't he? Somewhere, in, but that's because we, in a way, we both share the reason we're, that, that we that we agree on that. I mean, I agree that um, it's a choice between something quite inflationary metaphysically inflationary like panpsychism or illusionism is that not neither of us think that this middle position of being a realist about phenomenal consciousness but saying that it's just physical uh, we don't think that works yeah um we think you know you can't have your cake and eat it in that way you can't be a realist and say yes there really are these mental qualities but they're just they're just physical states of the brain we we, we all we, the charmers golf myself we all agree on that you can't have that if you want to be a a, 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 a physicalist. And it's not just about being a physicalist. It's about if you want to explain the brain, explain consciousness in in, in neuroscientific terms, in um, naturalistic terms, then you've got to, to 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 go the whole the whole way and be an illusionist. And if you look actually back at the at the early uh, mind brain identity theorists from the 1950s, people like Ulin Place and um, uh, 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 JJC Smart. They were quite clear about this. I mean, Ulian Place was quite clear about what he called the phenomenological fallacy. The idea that, you know, there really is when you have an, an after image of, uh, uh, of green, seeing something green, that there really is something somehow green somewhere in your mind, if not in, 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 in the world. He was quite clear about this. Mm -hmm. And I think um, philosophers have taken a sort of long loop away from that. 
uh, and I'm trying to draw them back to it, really. I think uh, uh, Thomas Metzinger also does it well. He says, I mean, um, it's an illusion that you think that when you dig into that brain, if you dig into the head, you're going to find something. All you find is just neural tissue, a <laughs> bunch of neurons, a bunch mm. of blood vessels, nothing else. There, there, there's, there's no space there's, in the, I think it's Dennett who says, there is no room in the head for anything extra, but. There's, there's a great quotation here from Paul Brocks um, from his book, Into the Silent Land. I'll just read it called, the space behind the face. And he says, the illusion is irresistible. Behind every face, there is a self. We see the signal of consciousness in a gleaming eye and imagine some ethereal space beneath the vault of the skull, lit by shifting patterns of feeling and thought, charged with intention and mm -hmm. essence. But what do we find in that space behind the face? When we look, he's a, 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 a neurologist. The brute fact is that there is nothing but material substance, flesh and blood and bone and brain. I know, I've seen. You look down into an open head, watching the brain pulsate, watching the surge and tug and probe, and you understand with absolute conviction that there is nothing more to it. There's no one there. It's a kind of liberation. It is. Liberation. Mm. And, and then he goes on, the illusion is irresistible, but not indissoluble. And what's wonderful about that is, if, this is a wonderful book, by the way, I recommend everyone to read it, Paul Brock's Into the Silent Land. It's a book about... Um, the brain about uh, uh, written by a um, uh, he's an, uh, a neurologist, isn't he? It's a, it's a, um, uh, and it's it's that that perspective that I uh, that I just read that that is the one that informs it. But at the same time, it's a deeply humane book about the people who who have these uh, uh, neurological conditions and about his interactions with them as people and how you can interact with, with people both as, the two things aren't incompatible. That vision of what's actually there in their brain isn't incompatible with your, react, with your interacting with the person as a whole, as, as, a, as a human being full of you know, a complex, sensitive person. Mm -hmm. You can do both. And as a, as a surgeon, you have to do both. Exactly, you have to. I mean, the fact and, that also, if the fact that, we both are able to communicate right now talks about the fact that we know that we're convinced by each other's illusion in a sense. So, I mean, you seem conscious to me. I seem conscious to you. There is, we're both unzombie like to each other. Uh, we, when you're approaching a person, you don't approach their consciousness, you approach the person. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of medical, a lot of medical doctors, when we try to learn about it in, in med school, it's, it's all about the person. It's not about that, the mind. It's not about, you have to take this whole being. The consciousness, the consciousness, your consciousness is, 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 is there. It's, it's, so it's in every inflection. Okay. Hypothetically, you know, I suppose you could be some sort of computer simulation. You could be some sort of, of, um, of, 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 of complex Android or something, but, the, the likelihood of that is diminishingly small. I can see all the sensitivity there. And if we were to be together in the same room and we were to spend some time together and have a drink and so on, I, I would, you know, the possibility that any, that any of this is, is kind of uh, so, so, sort of created by, in some um, simplistic artificial way by, 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 by a simple sort of uh, uh, computer program or something is, is is, 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 is tiny. Obviously, you're a living, breathing creature who is, who is, as I, keep, I like to use this thing, sort of vibrating in response to the world, response to what I say to you, how I look. Um, and we're, we're 
we are in a kind of complex dy dynamic, even through this <laughs> artificial medium, we're in this complex kind of dynamical interaction. And that's real. And that the consciousness is there in the interaction. It doesn't, it's not residing in some ethereal realm where, when I, where, where I can't access yours and you can't access mine. I mean, and it's very easy want. to be convinced otherwise. I mean, Philip K. Dick, some of his novels, you look at Blade Runner, Westworld, all of these, these types of shows that, ex that show you exactly how easy it is for us to attribute this consciousness to, to something that's got absolutely no biological relation to us. Yes, and but are, are, are we are we wrong to do it? I mean, if they if if they are if they are the, the, the idea is that you know you can look inside you know I don't you take off the face and it's just a lot of transistors or something inside and you say oh it wasn't really conscious after all even though it was behaving exactly like a human being so it could be but then you take off my face as it were as, as Brock says and what are you going to find in there you're going to find neurons. And saying, oh, and there's some spooky essence as well, doesn't make any difference to that because it's what difference is the spook, what's the spooky essence doing? Yeah. No, it, and actually it's, taking <laughs> off the face, it, there's nothing more alien than looking at a person exactly. without a face. I mean, it looks so out of this world. Exactly. It, it does a, not look anything like a human being once you remove that. And that's exactly what. It's, it's, it's a trope in science fiction. You know, that's how you know that it's not. It, you, you don't really need to care about it because you take it off and it's just transistors or something or just circuits that's mm -hmm. a rhetoric that's a trope in science fiction as you say it doesn't show that the thing is is, is a zombie well, it's a, the whole idea of a zombie is, it, it's yeah. yes, I mean, zombie supposed to be something that doesn't work the I, lights i don't like the it. inner lights are off what does that mean that doesn't mean anything to me I'm also I'm not too happy. I'm not a fan of the argument. I don't think I don't think it's conceivable. I think I think especially when you take into account sort of the psychological zombies as we mentioned earlier that are possible exactly. with human beings who can almost be perceived as less conscious. I mean, so that means what is, the opposite attribution. I, I, I this is something I really liked in your in your paper that um you shared a paper with me about um uh, about the um, uh, how illusionist and illusionist approach might be applied to schizophrenia, and I, I really liked that. Um, uh, it's a very um, um, promising approach, I think, to, to to testing out illusionist ideas and seeing how they shed light on these 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 cases. And uh, you, you, one thing you, you describe there is is a, uh, someone who's uh, them the sense of themselves. I think has so, sort of broken down. They're not. Engaging with the world, they're not. They're not vibrating. I, keep, I don't know whether this is a good matter or this vibrate. They're not vibrating with the world or with themselves in the way that they did. Um, they're in the narrative, a sort of broken down. It's not. Uh, they're not seeing themselves as a as a as a uh, as a person who's richly engaged with the world. And so they are, and they so they seem kind of. They don't not display uh, emotion. Uh, they, I guess, they don't respond. Um, uh, in a way that, um, uh, that, that, that um, uh, to quest, I guess they don't respond to questions. And if you ask them how they are, I suppose they they say, "What do I say? I, I, I don't know. I don't care." Very ambivalent. Like very. They, there's almost nothing going on there. And that is now that is a good description of 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 our sense of a zombie. Exactly. It's somebody who doesn't whose inner life has collapsed, has fragmented. Mm. Um, but it's not because the some inner light has switched off. It's because their sensitivities, both to the world and to their and to their own reactions to the world, have degraded, mm -hmm. have uh, broken apart. Their inner narrative isn't there.
And that's a real zombie, in a sense. Um, not, to, not to be dismissive about it, but it's somebody who really is lacking something significant that is central to consciousness. So if you, if you, what you mean by a zombie is someone who lacks the central thing that makes us conscious, that is, that is a good description of a zombie. Mm. That's um, what I like to somebody think as, as almost a spectrum of attribution. Um, Absolutely. We, we attribute consciousness based on a spectrum. If something slowly doesn't look as, hu as humane as us, we, we're going to attribute less consciousness to it. Um, yes, yeah. yes. And of course, one of the interesting things about, sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit because I'm, I've been talking a long time, but one of the interesting things about Dennett's work, uh, particularly on things like change blindness, and, and, uh, yes. is how we, we're not often not sure what to attribute to ourselves uh, in certain situations where a scene is changing and you don't notice that it's changing. Well, how do you describe your own experience? In change blindness, you, know, you, you look at a, at a, at a, a little video where, some aspect of the scene changes quite radically, um, but because you're not focused on it, you don't notice it. And, I mean, but when that, you do notice it, it suddenly leaps out at you. In the very popular example where the woman comes into the, while the guys are passing the ball, she comes in wearing a gorilla <laughs> costume and then starts banging yes. on the chest. I mean, you don't notice something so blatantly obvious. Exactly. And so what was your experience like at that time before you noticed it? It seems the noticing is crucial. Mm -hmm. The noticing, not the mere existence of this thing, this display on the inner theater, but you're noticing. Another, I, 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 I'll, um, yeah, I'll do my pickle jar one since I, I like this one. Uh, <laughs> I often do this one. It's one that strikes me quite powerfully. I don't know whether it works quite so well for other people, but you, 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 you want some pickles, okay? You want to bake a sandwich and you open the fridge and you scan the fridge and you just don't see the jar of pickles. And so you shut the door and you shout to your partner, where are the pickles? Have we not got it? And she says, they're straight, they're right there on the middle shelf. Look, open your eyes and you look at, bang, they're there. <laughs> How could you have missed them? Now, it's very tempting to say, now, what was it like when I looked in the fridge the first time? Now, obviously the pickles were there and your, your eyes must have, you know, the light from the pickle jar must have bounced off them and re registered in your retina and some uh, way in your brain. But what was there in your experience? Was the pickle jar there in your, was it shown in the Cartesian theater in your head? If it was, <laughs> why on earth did you not react? You were looking for them after all. Mm. Um, if it wasn't, then what was shown at that location in the screen? Was there a hole in the fridge? If so, why didn't you notice that? That would have been weird. Mm. Did your brain fill it in with some other product? If so, what? What did it fill it in with? Um, you know, the... Uh, ketchup or something why why would it do that what was going there's a temptation to think you could sort of press rewind on the mental tape and have another look not at the fridge but at your experience of the fridge and see what was there you can't because there isn't a tape <laughs> or that the point is all there is is a narrative of, of what that there's a set of reactions you didn't react to the pickle jar you didn't include it as it were in the narrative that's constructed not only by what you say and take it up but by the whole suite of your reactions it didn't get into the story Mm. Just that's like, it. Even when you consider your nose, I mean, we don't see our nose every day. It's right there. But if you close one eye, you then tend to see it. It's invisible. The blind spot as well. We're taught when you're taking a driver's yep. test, always yep. check your blind spot. I mean, it's the point where your optic nerve is at the back of your eye. It's the one spot that doesn't have retinal cells that can that can transmit this information to your brain. And yet we go through our lives not noticing that we have a distinct spot in our vision that's completely 
non-existent. You can fit an entire car in someone's blind spot. Uh, that's we, how drastic it is. We don't notice. Uh, uh, we don't notice the you know the, uh, until it's pointed out. You don't notice that you've only got detailed uh, perceptual visual information of a very small area in the center of your visual field that's actually uh, hitting your fovea. The, the rest of it is all very sketchy and really quite hard. If you tend now to what's in front of you and try and describe what's around you, it's not just that it's um, that it's not detailed. It's that you can't really even sort of even you can't say that it's an indistinct shape of this kind or that kind it's like there's something or other and I've kind of got a sense of it but I can't tell you whether it's it's just like indistinct and it shades off into nothingness um but you don't notice that um you don't go around noticing that everything's black behind you it isn't black behind you it's nothing behind you because that's not part of your story and then again um, this, this Cartesian thing always comes back because then you'll get people who will say it's only because we're not using 100% of our brains. We're only using 10%. I mean, these, these old outdated notions and these old ways of thinking always somehow find their way back. I mean, we know we use as much of the processing power as we possibly can. There is no 10% theory. Evolution can't afford to waste resources like that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so somehow they will always bring it back. I think the, the best way, as you said, is I think Descartes' prison is probably one of the best ways you can possibly move around this. Uh... Yeah, it's really interesting as well. And it's, it, um, the, it's, it's, it's been an interesting process since I started uh, doing this, and particularly since I started writing uh, more popular pieces um, about this, to see the kind of reactions that I get. Um, the, the ones that just get, the, get a sort of sketchy idea and just reject it outright are not so interesting. Um, but the people who really try to engage with it and you see that they have this this you know this cartesian picture and they maybe understand some of the force of what i'm trying to say but they can't get get out of this way of thinking and it's a really interesting that is itself a very interesting fact about the the, the 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 human mind i think that this i'm assuming for the sake of argument that i'm right here that 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 this I don't think these Cartesian intuitions that we have are just a product of culture. I think culture has elaborated them, but I think there is something about the nature of the um, the way that the brain models its own activity. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to Michael Graziano's work, um, that makes them very, very um, natural for us to develop. Mm. And once we've done this, and once they've taken root, it's it's really hard to see. It's definitely a cognitive. There's definitely a cognitive dissonance that occurs uh, mm. at the moment. Mm. The moment it happens, I mean, they've scanned brains where when when you put someone up on a functional MRI, you tell them certain things that don't correspond to their religion or culture. You, mm -hmm. uh, some of the, the, their brain activity sometimes just shuts down for a moment and that cognitive dissonance occurs. And when that happens, the person automatically goes back to whatever they know. Um, because mm -hmm. as an evolutionary basis, as a species Absolutely. trying to survive, it's always important to automatically go back to what you know. It's gotten you here so far. You might as well do it. So I think at that moment when someone is at that very edge, they reach that point where they just switch over and then they just don't accept it. Absolutely. We need our stories. I mean, the, 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 um, we, we, we are creatures. Who in, I mean, this is something that, um, again, going back to, to, to Nicholas Humphrey, he talks about our occupying the soul niche, a sort of niche we've created for ourselves, a, a, a cultural um, niche in which we think of ourselves as creatures with souls um, interacting with other creatures with souls. And this is 
our environment that we've created for us and where we live and where we function and how we 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 um we conceptualize each other and conceptualize our, i mean think of ourselves as having as having free will it, it, again i suppose that's part of the way we tend to conceptualize our activity in the world it's not it's not inevitable it's not it's and i think there are better ways um but it's a very natural one i think and it's one that people you know kind of need uh, at least until they've really got hold of something better mm. um that's where they live. It's 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 like you know it's like I don't it's like birdsong or whatever. It's a part of the of the of the of, it's a culturally evolved uh, 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 feature of our of our existence that, that that we can't just shrug off like that. We can't just uh, I look. Just because I, I someone's... think that as as the century moves on, um, it seems to be that illusionism or uh, illusion like views are slowly, progressively are, are growing. Uh, and I think it starts with a lot of these illusions of the self. A lot of people are trying, trying to enter the realm of mm -hmm. Buddhism, trying to do a lot of meditation. They're starting off with these slow versions, but uh, there's always that risk because the, the moment you start going down that path, you might go down the, conscious, the quantum consciousness path. Um, there's always this. <laughs> there's the, it's either you're going to go to one or the other. You're going you're to take the jump. But I, I do think people that are generally each generation is slowly taking into account uh, the science and what I what think that's that's right. But what we need to be very careful of, I think, is to these these uh, if you like myths, whatever we want to call them, these illusions are bound up very much with our um, their conception of ourselves, of our relations to other people, and. To some extent, they're bound up with our identity as, uh, as as human beings, as persons, and may and certainly some people think that they're central to our humanity, mm. and that if we lose them, then we lose our humanity. Uh, people thought this about religion, of course, about belief in the soul, and so on. Now, uh, I, I, I don't think they are. I think we can develop a richer sense, a sense of humanity that is based on a more uh, accurate self-conception, an accurate conception of the world that uh, being more accurate is more reliable and more sound. It gives us more purchase on the world, uh, uh, but that also supports an equally rich, if not richer sense of humanity. I think, it, I think, I think, you know, the truth, you know, does liberate us and makes us, um, but that we do need to concern ourselves with, with, with the worry that some people may feel they're losing their humanity when they lose these things. I, I'm, I'm not a person who likes, I mean, who likes to go out and uh, attack um, religious belief hmm. because I think it's doing a lot of important work for people. Oh, certainly, definitely. And uh, by all means, we need to, you know, work on developing you know, better belief systems, but we don't just, you don't just kick away somebody's um, support and offer them nothing else. You need to help them forward. You need to help them see that, they don't necessarily need those supports. There are other supports. Maybe they don't need supports at all in some areas, and in other cases, there are other supports that are that are that are better. But this has got to be a gradual, sensitive process. We mustn't just, you know, we must take care. I'm not. I don't want to be hard-headedly sort of scientistic about this. I think that's that's dreadful. That's dangerous. No, I completely agree. I think, and I think doing that might cause more damage to the theory in itself. Absolutely. I think Absolutely. the moment you become so antagonistic to a point where people just cannot relate to you in any way. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's bad, yeah. bad 
public relations, I think it's bad, um, but I think it's, it's also dangerous. I mean, I, at the end of a recent talk um, uh, by Dan Dennett, um, which I really liked, he said something about religion. I know he's, he's been associated, you know, with the, um, the atheist movement, and, you know, he does think that religion does a great deal of damage in the world, and he, he's worked hard to, to combat that. But at the same time, he's quite sensitive to the to the, the value that religion gives to, to, mm-hmm. to people's lives. And he said something that I really liked. He said there's something about religion that is, it's, um, it offers this conception of something like family, where when, when you go, they have to take you in. When you knock on the door, they have to take you in. It's got that kind of that notion of acceptance and, yes. and forgiveness and love. And yes, you don't want to go around trashing an attitude that, that supports that. Mm-hmm. You want to help them help people see that those attitudes don't necessarily need the support of a supernaturalist religion, that there are other ways of, of grounding those attitudes perhaps better. But you certainly don't want to be insensitive to that. And I, I don't think then it would be, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's so many aspects to it. And I think Dennett also talks about, I think they talk about the fact that, for example, if you look at some of the art, some of the the, the magnificent things that come out of these religions, um, there's so much that they, they add. They add so much complexity to the story as well. But, but it doesn't take away the fact that the, the, this, the real story, I mean, the fact that we, our atoms are formed in stars or mm-hmm. the fact that our molecules have taken billions of years to evolve into this. I mean, these stories are also quite magnificent. These, these are genuinely almost spiritual stories. When you talk, if, you, if someone can talk about it in a way that sounds spiritual, I think a lot more people will have access to it. Look, it, it all comes from us in the end. You know, the glory of the religious art doesn't come, it's not God-given, it's, it's human-given. It's a human response to life and their own experience filtered through this set of religious uh, ideas and, and images. But it's, it's, it's an expression of humanity, expression of, of us. And the wonder of all this comes from us. And we can, we can be equally wondrous in the way that we respond to scientific uh, frameworks, uh, um, equally creative, equally, I mean, again, going back to Humphrey, you know, uh, we, we, we just need to, to, you know, to carry on being human, carry on being the, 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 the rather amazing and occasionally awful, but endlessly creative uh, species that we are, whether it's within a religious framework, a scientific framework, whatever, that's where the wonder and the, the, the joy and the humanity comes from, not from something outside ourselves. Uh, and I, I think once you see that, um, it's it is it is kind of liberating really because you're not dependent on on this framework of ideas. You're free to explore and free to uh, uh, you know try to get to grips with this. Um, I mean, one of the, the, the you you talked earlier about this idea of you know the way that we you know we've always tried to center us sorry we've always tried to center ourselves in the universe and in a way that's right because we are filtering it all. We are the ones who have but but don't think that somehow it's all just. <laughs> Uh, somehow dependent on us, it's all it's all there, and it's wonder. We are just reflecting it. We're just you know mirrors to all this this wondrous stuff. Yes, it can um, it can lead to some sort of a solipsistic perspective. Mm, mm. Once you take it a little too far, I think I think it definitely mm. does tend to lead itself that way. But overall, I think when people adopt this, the main idea is to always remember that I think in my in my essay I quote. Um, Dumbledore from Harry Potter, I say, great <laughs> talks, <laughs> talks to Harry says, just because it's happening in your head, Harry, doesn't mean it isn't real. I mean, um, it's, it's, 
it's I think to say the similar thing about consciousness, a phenomenal consciousness, because it's not real, doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously or um, we we should still take these contents seriously because it's part of our existence. This is exactly who we are. But that does not necessarily mean we should take it literally. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. It's it's yes. Yes. Again, the analogy with fiction. Uh, fiction is is wonderfully important. Often more important than a than a than a than a, than, a, than, than, than just newspaper reports. Much more important mm-hmm. because it's it's much more expressive. No, no, on uh, that note, Keith. And, and I, uh, Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I, I really appreciate the time you've taken out to chat to me. I mean, it was very fascinating. We touched on so many different things. Anything you want to say before we conclude the show? Anything? I think the floor is yours. We've talked for, uh, it, it's, it's, we've talked a long time and uh, it's gone very quickly. Um, no, well, I, just I, for, I had no idea that much time had gone by. <laughs> I just, well, I just want to thank you for, for, for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. I'm, um, um, no, I, I look. I've, I've done so much pontificating and, and, and lecturing. I don't think I. I, I and I, 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 I can't I just wrap it all up. You can continue for as long as you want. But uh, no, no. I, I, I think I've talked myself out. Really. Um, <laughs> so I really just want to thank you. Um, I, I, one of the lovely things that's happened recently, I think, is, is podcasts, um, because it's a conversation that that we're having, you and I are having a conversation, I have conversations with other people in podcasts and people can listen to these podcasts and they can comment and um, they can get involved in different ways. I think this is a really positive thing that we can have these conversations and we can um, we can share them and we can talk things through because that's how we're going to, to solve things. We're not going to solve them. I don't, I mean, academics can go and reflect on these ideas and develop theories and, um, yeah, play these these, deli- these these complicated chess games. But if they're going to have any effect in the world, they need to share these ideas and people need to find these ideas useful to them mm-hmm. um, in, in, their, in, in, in their life, particularly, I think, in philosophy of mind and, and mind sciences generally. This stuff has to help people in some way. It has to be stuff they can use to understand themselves better. Mm-hmm. So sharing this is absolutely vital. And it's not a matter, I don't see it as a matter of me coming here and saying, oh, this is the truth and I found it out and so on. I mean, I sometimes talk that way because I'm trying to put across my ideas, but I don't see it that way. This is a com- this is a contribution to a conversation. All I ask is that people try it out. Try out this idea, try it on. You're not going to just get the idea just by reading the headline. You'll need to think a bit about it mm. and try and think yourself into the position and see if it helps. Mm. And if you've tried on and you try to look at things this way and it doesn't help, well, okay. But just try it, give it a try. And I think that's actually a good moral um, in many uh, areas of life, you know. Um, just Let's listen to each other a little bit more, try and share each other's perspectives. Mm. Don't just inhabit our own little e- egocentric bubbles. See things through other people's eyes. Take what you can from that build on it, use it, share what you can share with them. That's how we move forward. Um, I completely agree. I think uh, on that is precisely the point because while I may have similar views to you on consciousness, um, there's a reason why I still want to chat to people like Philip, um, others in the field, because it's 
it's so important for us to have this discourse. We have to find ways to find commonalities and also to spot the differences and try and understand why we have them. What biases Absolutely. are we holding? What, what led to this? Uh, it's, it's very important to know that we all, it's, it's, it's impossible to not have a bias. Oh. Evolved these traits. We are just our biases. That, <laughs> that is, our, our cognition is just a whole set of biases. <laughs> um, and uh, the trick is to have the right biases. <laughs> Or to at least have the bias that helps your life the best. I mean, as we were talking about, if we if we adopt this theory of illusionism and if you are able to incorporate it into your life, uh, all the better. This, it's just so much better if you can feel liberated, if you can feel as if this has contributed to you spiritually somehow. Um, using the word spiritually in the sense that yes. uh, this uh, this has enlightened you, this has made you feel yes. better. It has provided you with some depth and and the essence that, although is not ontologically real, is epistemologically true for you. Yes, yes, no, I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great, great, great line to finish on. I'm happy with that. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.